Hi. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? I'm going on a big fat tour, and it starts June 23rd in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And then June 24th, I'm in Indianapolis. Oh, shit. We're moving. We're grooving. Got a lot of shit happening. A lot of dates. All of them are available along with ticket links at joerogan.net forward slash tour. A lot of the shows are sold out. We've added second shows to a lot of places, including those first two. Uh, Minneapolis sold out the first show pretty much almost full. Maybe maybe a couple tickets left, 100 tickets left or so. And then the same thing with Indianapolis. There's a few scattered tickets remaining for the first show, but tickets available for the second show. joerogan.net forward slash tour. Go there. Check it out. Be happy. I don't know if you're going to be happy if you go there. I don't know why I even said that. I'm just trying to make noises with my face that make sense. I'm trying to get it together, ladies and gentlemen, and so should you, which is why this podcast and all of my podcasts are brought to you by Onnit. Onnit is a total human optimization company. It's a very rare and unique company whose ultimate goal is to provide you with all of the tools, all of the information, and all the inspiration to optimize your time here on planet Earth, to get your shit together, to get you more fit, to get your mind sharper, to put your mood in order with things like New Mood. We have supplements that literally are designed to help your mood. What? What? What are you saying? What New Mood is, our daily stress formula, it is a mood support supplement. 5-HTP and L-tryptophan are the building blocks for serotonin. All this is explained far better than I will ever be able to do. But serotonin is a key neurotransmitter that is linked to mood, happiness, and positive outlook. And we combine two of the raw building blocks of serotonin, which are L-tryptophan and 5-HTP, with a converting catalyst, vitamin B6, and New Mood provides the nutrients to help your body optimize serotonin levels. It's very effective, and it's safe, and it's healthy. It's not something that you should take, though, if you're on an SSRI. So consult your doctor if you're on an antidepressant, because essentially they form... They, you can get something called serotonin syndrome where you have too much serotonin. Uh, you don't want to be too happy, I guess. I don't know how that works. Um, if you want to find out about New Mood or any of our supplements, I recommend you go directly to onit.com and click the link for supplements. The best thing to do if you're starting um, to get your, your feet wet in the world of Onnit, click on the Academy link. The Academy link is one of my favorite parts of the website because it's filled with free articles, articles on exercise physiology, articles on the benefits of certain diets and nutrition, articles on motivation, Q&As with influential people. It's essentially all we find that is beneficial online. We put it in here, and I'm talking hundreds and hundreds of articles, again, all of them available for free. We also have an Onnit Academy, an actual physical academy, which is in Austin, Texas, uh, which is a state-of-the-art workout facility with great classes, strength and conditioning equipment, and 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu and Bang Muay Thai. So we have martial arts classes, we have kettlebell classes, bodyweight classes, and uh, it's an amazing place to work out, a real super positive vibe. If you're looking for uh, a good group of like-minded people that are on the right path to self-improvement, look no further than on it. 
Um, and if you're looking for uh, strength and conditioning equipment, we have a full line of, of uh, kettlebells, battle ropes, steel maces, things along those lines. We also have really cool artistic kettlebells in several forms. We have one that's an Iron Man kettlebell, which is a part of our Marvel series. We have uh, primal bells, which are all the great apes and Bigfoot. These are all 3D cast, 3D balanced, cast iron, invincible kettlebells. I mean, these fucking things will be around long after we're gone, most likely, unless something catastrophic happens to them. Uh, we have them in uh, the form of z- zombies. We have them in the form of the legend kettlebells, which are monsters. We have a werewolf, a cyclops, and a harpy. They function exactly the same as regular kettlebells. They just look really fucking cool. And then, of course, we have regular ones as well. Uh, this ad's too long. Go to onnit.com, O-N-N-I-T. Use the code word ROGAN, and you will save 10% off any and all supplements. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by NatureBox. NatureBox makes snacks that taste great and have high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, artificial flavors, or artificial sweeteners. So you can feel great about snacking. Ooh. NatureBox recently made their service even better. Now you can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel any time. It's simple. You go to naturebox.com and check out their snack catalog. I'm a big fan of peanut butter nom-noms, but they're a guilty pleasure. I really like uh, Big Island pineapples. They're these dried pineapples that are damn delicious. I like... um, these cashew clusters, these power clusters, those are great. Sriracha cashews are a, an all-time classic. There's a bunch of really yummy, delicious snacks, and they're always adding new ones. You can choose the snacks you want. They'll deliver them right to your door, and you never get bored. There's new snacks every month. And if you ever try a snack you don't like, Nature Box will replace it for free. And right now, you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering fans of this podcast 50% off your first order when you go to naturebox.com forward slash Rogan. That's naturebox.com forward slash Rogan for 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com forward slash Rogan. And last but not least, we are brought to you by ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter, which is a fantastic way for you to find someone to fill that fucking job opening. You know how it is. If you got to hire somebody, that's a pain in the ass. That means you're already short on resources. You don't have the time to be going to 100 different job sites and posting this ad and then monitoring the... uh, uh, You can't do it. It's too hard. But... With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then, with their powerful technology, you can efficiently match the right people to your job better than anyone else is going to be able to do, which is why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. You simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. 
Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes, sizes, all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, listeners to this podcast can go post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com forward slash Rogan. That's ZipRecruiter.com forward slash Rogan to try it for free, ladies and gentlemen. ZipRecruiter.com forward slash Rogan. All right, we got through. Uh, my guest today, her name is Megan Phelps, and she is formerly of the Westboro Baptist Church. And if you've heard of them, they are the church that was founded by her grandfather, Fred Phelps. And they are the ones that protest the funerals of uh, gay men with those horrible signs that say, God hates fags. They show up at the funerals of of soldiers that have died. And they proclaim, proclaim that these soldiers are dead because people have not followed the word of God. And extremely hateful and controversial group and she was a part of it for most of her life she's been out for four and a half years and uh is a really fascinating podcast first of all she's a very very smart person very articulate very well read and uh was just unfortunately born into this terrible situation or maybe after talking to her i mean not in her perspective, probably, but in the perspective of may, many others, I think. Fortunately, born into that environment, not unfortunately, because she gives some incredibly unique insight to us, to me during this podcast and to you that are listening to it, of what it's like to grow up being a really intelligent, very curious person who's trapped in this insanely rigid ideology that's also extremely hateful. Um, she's brilliant, really brilliant and really courageous. And I think you're going to enjoy the shit out of this. So without any further ado, um, Megan Phelps. Joe Rogan Podcast, check it out. The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Yeah, we're live. Okay. How are you? You're a Wheeler Walker Jr. fan, I see. Um, I maybe I will be. You will. <laughs> you never heard of him before? I hadn't. I confess. Mm, that's okay. Um, so first of all, thank you. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. What is it like? I mean, I guess this is the best way to get this started. What is it like being a person that grew up in the Westboro Baptist Church? For a person on the outside, for me, I when I think of that, I think of like this crazy hateful angry environment filled with like really mean people that say horrible things about gay people and all sorts of other folks but i meet you and you're super nice you seem so normal that is the conundrum so i mean a lot of the things the words that you just used to describe the church that's definitely not how i experienced it growing up for the most part um i mean my family outside of when they're not on the picket line they're I mean, incredibly kind and gentle and and compassionate. And, and I, I think the biggest misconception about the church is that they're motivated by hatred. Mm. Um, and in their eyes, it's the definition of loving. What we, we thought we were doing, what we were doing was loving our neighbor. So 
in the first time that phrase appears in the Bible, it's in the context of when you see your neighbor sinning, you have to rebuke him, not just like watch him wander off on this way to hell. So that was how we saw it. We thought we were warning people and, and giving them the only hopeful message um, that could save them from eternity in hell. Was there ever any dissent amongst the, the people that were in the church about like how the message is being distributed? Like if you're holding up a sign that says God hates fags and uh, a gay guy was being buried at a funeral and you guys were there protesting with those signs. Like was there ever anyone inside the organization that was like, hey, this is not the way to do it. These people are suffering and mourning. Not really. I mean, once once my grandfather... Uh it was, it was he was the one who kind of um, developed that strategy. He thought, so you know, this the examples of funerals. If somebody, if they're burying somebody, uh, so a soldier, say, or a gay person, uh, it's an example of the curses of God. So God says, if you uh, obey me, I'll bless you, and if you disobey me, I'll curse you. So now, we, why soldiers? So several times in the scriptures, uh, it's this connection between the sins of the nation and uh, the pun- the punishments. So, for instance, in the book of Judges, it says, they chose new gods, then was war in their gates. Uh, and then um, in the books of the kings, it says, they um, uh, there fell down many slain because the war was of God. And then in the book of Hosea, it says, uh, they have deeply corrupted themselves. Therefore, I will remember their iniquity and I will visit their sins. Though they bring up their children, yet will I bereave them. There shall not be a man left. So it's these these threatenings, these warnings from God that if you disobey me, I'm going to curse you. So we would go to these soldiers, or these soldiers' funerals, uh, to warn the living, to say that if 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 you don't want to be likewise punished, you have to repent, you have to change your ways and and obey God. Now, people that are also hardcore Christians uh, that also follow the word of God very closely, but still would see like what you guys were doing at these funerals, holding up these signs protesting where a soldier who supposedly gave his life for our freedom, right? Supposedly they're over there fighting so that we could be safe here. And then yeah, you guys are out there with these signs. Like there had to be a lot of people that have like-minded views in Christianity, but still were furious at you people. Yeah, absolutely. And, and from our perspective, um, we thought that they were substituting their righteousness for the righteousness of God. So they were upset that we were out there giving this message that was 100% biblical in our, from our point of view. And they, God calls that compassion when he sends his servants with his message. So we thought, even though they call themselves Christians, they're ignoring these you know, vast swaths of the Bible that, that support what we were saying and how we were saying it. So, I mean, there was definitely a lot of, a lot of pushback from people on all sides, but, and especially from um, other Christians. But we just thought, they're not really Christian because they're not wow. following this like we understand it. So you guys were pretty much solidified in your opinion. It was a, a consensus. Mm-hmm. It was like everybody thought you were doing the right thing. Right. So, I mean, so that when the soldiers' funerals, when those protesting, it was in June of 2005 that we started protesting soldiers' funerals. And how was it brought up? So my grandfather had been, so it's 2005, so the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, he'd been, you see, you see these things on the news, uh, and he, he would, I mean, the, the funerals, like what was going on at the funerals, and he said, these aren't funerals, these are patriotic pep rallies, and they're saying all these things about God bless America. Well, God isn't blessing America, God is cursing America, so we have to go and, and give a different message. Um, so that's how it came up initially. Um, but so I went to 
my first soldier's funeral protest in the, the following month in July of 2005. And before I went, so, you know, every time we would go to these, like, I, I was protesting from the time I was five years old. So when you go out on the, you know, to these protests, a lot of times there would be uh, media there, you know, people asking questions. And I, I wasn't sure how I would answer that. If somebody asked me, why are you at this funeral? I didn't, I wasn't sure how I would answer it. So like, I felt very, when I found out I was going, I thought, I thought I need to, um, I need to understand this. So I went to my mother and she brings forth those verses that I just quoted to you and several others. We sat down as a family as we did every night, um, you know, to read the Bible and to talk about world events and, you know, the church's interpretation of these uh, events in light of their understanding of the scriptures. So, you know, she goes through and explains this, you know, very carefully. And because her answers came from the Bible, I was, that was my, my foundation was that the Bible is the infallible word of God and that it's true no matter what any human thinks and that we have a duty to obey it 100% no matter, no matter what I think or feel otherwise. I have to bring my thoughts and opinions in line with this. So even though I had a lot of trepidation at the beginning about going to those funerals, uh, I very quickly acclimated to it, you know, as you do when you know, in an environment like that where everything depends on you falling into line. Now, what was it like when you first did it? Like, what was the reaction to so, other people, or, you know, other people's mm -hmm. reaction to you? Mm -hmm. So that very first one, it was in Omaha, Nebraska. And it was incredibly tense. Um, so there was a bunch of cops. We always, every time we would go to protest somewhere, we would contact the police to make sure that there would be a police presence. Uh, Why? Because, because people were tempted to, and did, you know, would come after us physically and try to assault us. And, and again, this it happened with some regularity. So from the very earliest days of the protesting, we, uh, you know, my mom and her generation had made this decision to who I should say, many of them are lawyers. So they would, you know, write letters from, you know, as, as attorneys saying, we're going to be coming, we're going to be protesting in your city. Uh, people, this is what we do. You know, we hold signs on public sidewalks. We are not violent. We, so explaining what a pro, what our protest looked like. And then, and then saying, if you want to avoid, you know, uh, these kind of like violence that often happens, uh, be there. So this first one, how old were you in 2005? I was 19. So you were a kid, you know, but a grown kid. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're with your parents, and this is the first time you're protesting a veteran. Mm -hmm. what, what was that experience like? So I'm standing uh, across this, we're standing across the street from the church. Like I said, it's, it was very solemn, very quiet. There were, which is not, was not normal, really, for protests. A lot of times we would be out there, you know, singing and chanting and, and making it was a big public display. Um, but this was, uh, like I said, incredibly tense. Nobody was really talking. Nobody was really moving. Um, uh, and, you know, the family was, you know, pulled up in a, and I think it was in a limousine across the street. And the family got out and, and looked around uh, and saw us. And Did they know you guys were going to be there beforehand? Mm -hmm. Because we always would publicize that. We would send out news releases. So it, they were aware that we were going to be there, um, and there were a bunch of, I think they were Marines, uh, like in dress blues, standing there, and they, they looked incredibly angry and, and upset. But like I said, it was, it was like, it felt like at any moment, if something happened, like that the whole situation could explode. But again, like, so the cops, having the cops standing there, and so it was, um, it was, 
it was over, it was pretty uh, it was it was really tense. What kind of things were they saying to you guys? They weren't saying anything. Like not, not, none of this, which is like what I was trying to say. It's really unusual um, for protests like that. We a lot of times we would be exchanging. You know, we would we would, of course would be yelling about Bible verses and the hatred of God, and you know they would be talking about love and tolerance and how we're wrong and not Christian. And but at this one, it was it was very quiet. It wasn't always like this. So pretty quickly, you know, once again, once we became acclimated to to those protests, um, and also there, uh, have you heard of the Patriot Guard riders? It was a group of motorcyclists uh, who decided to and they formed like in uh, across the country so in every state there was a group of these uh, motorcyclists who when they found out we were going to be protesting somewhere they would go and you know rev their engines so that our words and songs and such wouldn't be heard by the family uh and and they would you know hold american flags and try to block you know it's always it's putting a buffer between us and the family and uh so when when that started to happen it, it became almost like a game sometimes and you know, in hindsight, I this makes me cringe. And and but but it became like this game of trying to like show that we were going to get our message across, no matter what any human being wanted, because we knew we were so sure that this was what God wanted. Wow. What made you leave? Uh, a lot of things. It, it started. My very first sort of conscious doubts came from conversations on Twitter. So wow, I, yeah, something good got done through yeah. Twitter. Yeah, lots of good things. I also met my husband there. Oh, there you go. While I was still at the church. That's, oh, it's kind of nuts. Is he um, an atheist? Uh, I don't know that he would use that word to describe <laughs> himself. <laughs> Actually, I was just talking to Sam about this, and I was like, when people, the problem with the word is when people, when you say atheist, people think jerk. And like, well, so so many people do. So many people think that like, oh, you're absolutely certain that there is no God. And so it's, it's a word that I hesitate to use to describe myself too, but, Mm. but I'm not a, I'm not a believer. I don't even like to say I'm not a believer because I, I love people. I believe in people and that there is so much hope and, and for people and that we can, I don't know. Anyway, so. So conversations that you had on Twitter did what do you, like what, what doors did they open in your mind? Right. So. I got on Twitter and it was like an extension of the picket line, right? So we right. go out there with these picket signs and, you know, people would come up to us and ask us questions. And so it was this, it was a constant, uh, a constant conversation. And so I got on Twitter to take that, you know, to, to the internet, to, to reach more people. And so one of the first things I did when I got on Twitter was to attack this Jewish man named David Abbott Ball, who ran a blog called Julicious. He was listed as the second most influential Jew on Twitter uh, on this. Uh, Who's number one? Um, I actually can't remember. <laughs> not memorable, not part of my story, That's I guess. Okay. But um, You can check it. It's the JTA's list if you want to. Okay. But anyway, so he was listed as number two. And uh, so he responded initially with, uh, you know, sarcasm and, and, kind of, and hostility. Um, but pretty quickly, he sort of changed tactics and started, instead of, like, mocking me, although he still did do that some, too, um, he was asking questions about our picket signs. And I started asking him questions about Jewish theology because I, I wanted to better know how to counter it, you know, to, right. from the scriptures. Because I, I was sure that they were wrong. Jews killed Jesus, and, and they reject him as the Messiah, and so all of these things. Um, so... Um, Right, so we're having this back and forth, and this goes on for about a year. And during that year, I actually met him twice. I, I 
protested him twice. Once so you the, went to his functions or did, was he giving speeches? Like, yeah. Where was he? So in Long Beach, actually, at the Jewlicious Festival, they had this, this Jewish <laughs> cultural festival. What a great name. Yeah, it's great. He, he's great. <laughs> um, so he, right, so I, he was going to be there. Uh, and, you know, I went and I was protesting him. Uh, and he came out to the picket line and it was, it was one of those like very rowdy pickets. There was a bunch of, uh, counter protesters, like, and they were, it was, I don't know, guys dressed as like the Easter bunny and Jesus. And, you know, it was actually, it got pretty violent. So I was actually super it got violent. Well, yeah. And the cops, this, I told you, we called the cops, like the cops were just standing there watching people like actively assaulting us, like hitting us. And so we're like walking around trying to, you know, to not be hit. Because we're not going to hit back. We weren't. They're, like I said, the church is very against violence. Like they're not going to be violent to people or defend themselves. Just, just to. So, I was actually really glad when David came out because he became like a buffer between me and the rest of the counter protesters because everybody could tell that he was, you know, he's wearing his delicious shirt and whatever. Anyway, so, so the conversation continued there, and then also at another protest uh, six or seven months later, um, and then. Uh, it was not long after that second protest, he, we're talking again, and he was asking about one of our signs that said, death penalty for fags. And, you know, of course, I'm reiterating why the church believes that, because in the book of Leviticus, God calls for the death penalty for gay, gays. And, and then in Romans 1, in the New Testament, uh, it's reiterated, it says, they that commit such things are worthy of death. So, um, and so, so I, I'm telling David these things, and he says... Um, it's like, yeah, but didn't Jesus say, let he who is without sin cast the first stone? And I said what well, we always said to that, which was, uh, we're not casting stones. We're preaching words. And he said, yeah, but you're advocating that the government cast stones. And I remember, you know, I'm, this is all through Twitter. Mm-hmm. And so I, I see this message and I, I kind of gasped and I was like, I had never connected that Jesus there. Of course, he was talking about the death penalty specifically about the death penalty and we were advocating it and so i wasn't sure how to respond but he david kept kept going he said and and what about this member of your church who had a child out of wedlock and i said what what about it like that's this is another point you know people it was it was you know common knowledge people knew about this and would throw this in our face and we would say the standard of god isn't sinlessness it's repentance so she doesn't deserve that punishment because she repented. She stopped, you know, she wasn't having premarital sex anymore and she knows that it's wrong and she changed her mind and she changed her conduct, which is what repentance is. And he said, yeah, but she would have been killed if you had instituted the death penalty for that sin. And it was the first time again that I connected that if you kill somebody, as soon as they sin, they you lose the opportunity to repent and be forgiven. And so... Again, so I'm I'm just sort of staring at my phone and, you know, in Topeka, Kansas, he's in Jerusalem. And I really quickly ended the conversation. I don't even remember quite how, but it was just sort of this, like, I hadn't, I didn't know how to handle this because, like I said, the church is full of lawyers. They're very intelligent and their arguments and their theology, for the most part, is very well constructed and super consistent. And so for there to be this, you know, this, this hypocrisy, this contradiction, I didn't, my, like my brain was felt like I was exploding, so I went to a couple people in the church, including my mother, um, and the response was, "Feel free to stop me at any time." By the way, I feel like no, I'm filibustering no, here. No, no. Um, so she she's reiterated the same verses that I had told David that that supported our position, but she didn't address the contradiction. 
And when I seemed unsatisfied with it, uh, she said I was getting wrapped around an axle and uh, just sort of, you know, push it aside. And the, the response was so just to shut, shut me down uh, mm-hmm. and then to move on to the next thing, which is it's a very human thing, right? When somebody puts something in your face that, that is this contradiction that you're not ready to deal with or that you can't, it, it, you, you, you know what I mean? You compartmentalize, yeah. you kind of sort of push it aside and try not to. So the way that I dealt with it was to uh, stop holding the sign because I knew that if somebody asked me about it, I, I couldn't defend it because I didn't, I didn't believe it. But there was nothing else I could do at that point. And, but the importance of that conversation, this is obviously just one small contradiction, one small inconsistency and a vast, you know, we still, I still believed that everybody outside the church was basically completely wrong and, and evil and, or delusional. And that the church was basically right, except this one point. Did anybody ever feel that it was bad to use slurs? Like to use some sort of insulting term for gay people instead of saying God hates gay people. So at the very beginning, they did use the word gays. It Why did they change it? Well, so my grandfather would say that gay is a misnomer. These people aren't happy. They're committing suicide and they're they're <laughs> evil and abominable and they have no peace. God has taken their, their peace. They're not happy. So gay is a misnomer. And so the word the word fag, they say like Amos, in the book of Amos, there's a... a it's translated firebrand there. So my grandfather would say, the word fag is an elegant metaphor. And it's um, gays, you know, a bu- a fags are a bundle of sticks, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Used for kindling. Right. So gays are they, are, they burn in their lust one toward another. And they fuel the fires of hell and the fires of God's wrath. So it's an elegant metaphor, Grandpa Grams would say. Um, Do you know what the original metaphor was really supposed to be? You mean from the Bible? No, the word faggot. Oh, no, actually. Faggot means a bundle of woods, a bundle of uh, wood, and they would use that expression to describe a woman because a bundle of wood is burdensome. Like carrying around a bundle of wood is very burdensome. So when they would call a woman a faggot, they were saying that she was burdensome. So when they would call a man a faggot, they would say that he is burdensome like a woman. Like mm. a bundle of wood, like mm-hmm. a non-manly man that can't get right. work done, you know, the, those, along those lines. Right. And then it became used by people erroneously saying that it was about burning them and that they would burn gay people because they would burn faggots of wood. But that's not really the case. It I, just sounds cool. Yeah, I actually had never heard that before. Yeah. Yeah. If you look, see if you can find that, Jamie, Google that. Uh the original term faggot meant burden, b- b- bundle of wood and burdensome like a bundle of wood. Because, I mean, think about, like, carrying a bundle of wood, especially if you didn't have a truck. It's a huge pain in the ass. Mm. That's kind of what the source of it was. Wow. Yeah, no, I had no I had no. Yeah, people use it wrong. And the real problem is the people that use it wrong are, like, gay activists. And they try to say how horrible that word is because it was used to represent how gay people were burnt. But there's never been, like, a time in history where, like... There's a whole series of gay people that were like burnt, you know, it's just like they drowned witches and things Mm -hmm. were done like real specifically, but it's never been like a thing. What do we got here? The word faggot has been used in English since the late 16th century as an abusive term for women, particularly old women. A reference to homosexual sexuality may derive from this. Uh, Why does it have to be so weird the way you got it? Oh, okay. Yeah, I can read it like that. 
Uh, blah, blah, blah. So there it is. An alternative possibility is that the word connected with the practice of uh, fagging in British private schools in which younger boys performed potentially sexual duties for older boys, although the word faggot was never used in this context. Hmm. But the big one means the bundle of wood. The bundle of sticks. What's that, Jamie? What do you got? Something awkward to be carried is right Yes, to. exactly. Burdensome. So that's where it comes from. It really didn't have anything to do with burning people. Mm. But like they'll, they'll repeat it like to, to make a big point, like a big dramatic point. But it's, you know, it's melodramatic. You would think I would know this, given our uh, respective histories, but I literally have never heard this in my life. Yeah, it's an important <laughs> distinction for why people use that term. Because it's really just that they're annoying. I mean, it's really just, you know, they just think of some non-manly man who can't get things done. And he's probably crying all the time and he's burdensome. My experience of gay people since we left, which is mm-hmm. obviously much more uh, maybe reflective of reality, uh, has not been that at What all. has it been like? Un- impossibly wonderful. Don't overcompensate because you're getting out of this I'm, bad environment. I'm, I'll I'm take just... you down to Santa Monica <laughs> Boulevard to some of the gayest <laughs> spots on earth. You'll see dudes with cut off shorts and you'll change your tune. You'll be like, what are they doing? Well, I mean, I'm not trying to like to paint everybody with the one brush now either. They've but been amazing. As soon well, as they start being attracted to men, something happens. No, they become different than that's every not other what I mean. Person. Like they're I just know. people, right? Like yes, it's just other sure. people. So I mean, right after we left, like uh, at first I thought we have to hide from the past forever. My sister and I, I should say, left together. Um, How old were you guys? So I was 26. I was almost 27. Did you have a long conversation before you did it? Many. Many. It was about four months between when I first talked to her about leaving. So what was the first initial conversation and how did you gather up the courage to even sort of breach the subject? Uh, It was really terrifying and awful uh, because, I mean, I remember from the time I was very young, um, there's this passage in Deuteronomy that my mom would quote and it's about, you know, if somebody... Uh, if if your you know friend somebody close to you your your relative somebody comes up to you and says uh, let us go and serve other gods like somebody secretly says to you those things uh, you have to stone them and you the one that they came to you're supposed to be the first one to and my family's not stoning people um, what but, would they do though if it said it in the Bible and someone said hey we gotta we have to serve this golden cow. So they, we also have, in the New Testament, it talks about rendering unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God's the things that are God. So we also have to obey the law of man. We have to obey the law of, so, and we're, so we're not supposed to be um, just, so. But the law of man supersedes the law of God? We're, we're supposed to be obedient to the laws of men. But also, I mean, there, there's, there's kind of a complicated um, a little bit a theology where it, it sort of undid a lot of the mosaic code that we didn't actually have to follow those things. But honestly, I, I don't know. I, I think it's the whole, I think it's like the death penalty for fags thing. So like if they still believe that that punishment is, is applicable, then, then we should be trying to convince the government lobbying the government to like with those signs. Right. So, um, so that I, it was, you know, my sister, if I went to her and said these things to her, she could easily have turned around and, and told my parents not as a it's a culture of tattletales not out of bad intention but because they believe that they're trying to help you right they don't want you to go down a bad path so so you know when i it was it was the i first thought of leaving on it was july 4th 
and I was with my sister at the time. And when it first occurred to me that I might that I might have to leave the church or that the church might be wrong, I thought I had to leave like that second because if it even occurred to me that meant I didn't belong there and that God was going to punish me and that I I just felt like just immediately so much guilt and like I was a betrayer. But was all your social life connected still to the church? Yeah. And was this where had you already known your husband by then? I, I had, yeah. So he corrupted you. He was definitely part of it. Uh. <laughs> so, but like, it, it wasn't like that. It's so like the beginning, like, so, so he was just another person on Twitter at first. Um, and it was, it was, it was like friendly conversation. And this went over the, you know, for the course of several months. Um, I don't know, eight, eight or eight months or so, seven or eight months. Uh, and then, and it was never, and there was never anything, you know, about feelings or, you know, relationships or all that stuff is totally Booty forbidden. Pictures. No, nothing like that. Like, not even, like, not even anything, like, nothing. Like, it's just that I, I, my right. mind didn't work that way. There is, there can be no relationship like that with outsiders. But. Outsiders. I, outsiders. Wow. Yeah. So. You know, and you, I, I actually thought I was never going to get married because most of the people in the church, about 80% or so of the people in the church, there's only 80 people or so anyway, were my immediate and extended family. So oh, I thought no. there's no way that I'm going to, I'm just not going to get married. So you just accepted kids. that? It was, it wasn't, it wasn't like an, like an easy thing at first, but it was just, it was just the facts on the ground, you know, like I, so I So the facts on the ground were you had to date someone inside the church. There was only 80 people in the church. They're all your family. You can't date your family. Fuck. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I, I should say there were a couple of people my age who like, and they can't, they had just joined the church. Like, you know that, but I had no, like, I had no interest in any of them. And oh, no. no it Slim was... pickings and not. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it was kind of strange, but I, so I actually had a dream about meeting, so, and I should say also my husband at the time, I didn't know, he was totally anonymous on Twitter, like so it's just his words. I didn't know what he looked like, I didn't know, you know, his name or where he lived or anything about him, uh, except except these words. Um, and he was, uh, he was just curious and kind and and that sort of, and he loved people, and so he would sort of always be pushing pushing the conversation back to it's like I'm giving it looks like I've told you all those verses about protesting funerals and why we have to go and do this and the importance of it and why we have to thank God for these tragedies because mm -hmm. God is sovereign and he's in control so I'm I'm talking about the I'm scripturally like the justifying all these things and he kept pushing it back to because he's not he's super well versed in the Bible um so he didn't know how to, he's like, I, I see that the Bible says these things, but what about the family? Like, I just cannot imagine going and doing these things to, to people. And so this is all happening, like, on, as I'm, so I'm also still having conversations on Twitter with so many other people. So it's like, Twitter became this, like, empathy machine for me. Like, so it's not just, like, on a picket line where people are butting heads and, you know, arguing and debating and, and yelling and it, it's... I'm, yes, having these, they can be kind of aggressive conversations, but I'm also seeing like photos of their cats and them, you know, exchanging, you know, joking with their friends. And so I'm seeing a side of people and sort of being immersed in this community in a way that I had never been before. And so it was really, it's like, I'm trying to say, like, when you say, why did you leave? Like there's, it took, it was so much sort of happening, you know, around this time. So when by the time this like pile up of things um 
you know, and I'm processing it as I'm going through this. I'm also talking to my sister, uh, and, and she was the only, and other people in the church, but she was the only person, if I ever had a doubt or a, or a question or a, like, if I thought we're doing something wrong here, she was the only person who would say, yeah, you're right. That doesn't make sense. That I should say my sister is, um, creative and artistic and had a, like a little bit of reputation for being kind of rebellious, not as like submissive as my, me and, and our other sister. Um, so it was this, this dynamic of, uh, you know, between the two of us where she was the only person I could fully articulate my thoughts and feelings to. Um, and so when I first thought of leaving and I turned around and I thought I literally, I was, we were painting at a friend's house painting the walls. And I, I turned around to set my paintbrush down. I thought I had to go and leave that second. And I turned around and saw my sister. And uh, I thought I can't leave without talking to her. So the next day, I um, she came home from work over the you know lunch hour. And we would always like go up to my room and we were talking about all these doubts we were having. And I was crying and I put my head in her lap. And, and I couldn't even start like articulating the idea of leaving was too much like it, it's it's terrifying um and it, it's just seemed like impossible and I said um what if we weren't here and she said what do you mean and I said what if we were somewhere else and so it, that starts this conversation where you know I cannot let go of all the things that I thought that the church was doing wrong that our, our where our theology was wrong where we were applying it wrong I mean in a way that that was destructive and unscriptural um and she kept pushing the conversation back to, we're never going to see our family again. We're going to lose everyone and everything that's ever been important to us. There is no hope outside this church. All the things that we had learned about outsiders, that, you know, that they were evil and they, they could never truly love each other or care about, care about one another. They're really just enabling one another on the path to hell. So, and so this, this, back and forth, you know, goes on for about four months before we finally actually left. And, uh, it was as, as bad or worse as than I could have imagined. But to get back to the, well, let's get to that yeah. bad or worse you could have ever imagined. So what I should, ha- oh, so yeah. you left, how did you leave? Uh, we were talking to my parents and you know, and it was another, another issue had come up and I, I couldn't, we couldn't, it was a battle that we weren't going to fight again. We, we, we kept, I should say in those four months, I kept trying to, to articulate these doubts in a way that the church would accept, like trying to convince them not being as open, like, but as time went on, I became more and more open about, about these questions and doubts. Um, and I, I just, I, I couldn't, we couldn't fight it anymore. I just looked at Grace and I said, we have to go. And because we, and I should say also, we had already been packing, like we had, we had started packing our things about a little over a month before that. And we had started like taking boxes to our friend's house. Um, and with the understanding, he's actually our, he was our high school English teacher, um, that we had kept up with on Twitter. And he, you know, I, we basically told him, you know, if something changes, if the church changes and these things get better, uh, then we'll, we'll take all our stuff back and just pretend like none of this ever happened. And he was just, you know, understanding and compassionate and, and really supportive. Um, but so we had done all this stuff already, but we actually had to go and pack the rest of our things. So 
we walked out of our parents' bedroom and went and started packing and, you know, people started coming, my brother and some of the elders and my aunt, my cousin, you know, people, I, 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 we were very close, like our whole, my whole life revolved around the church. And so to look these people in the face and say that, you know, this, the, you know, the us them mentality, it, it, the bonds that are created in environments like that are incredibly strong, at least they were in our church. And again, most of these people are also my family. Um, so it was, it was awful. Uh, and I'm, tr- you know, crying and packing and trying to explain to them why, why we're leaving. And I can hardly talk, you know, be just, just, I was so overwhelmed, but, um, we actually had to go back the next day with a U-Haul to get the rest of our stuff or, our parents helped us pack. It's not, it's not one of those, uh, like there are some or groups like that where they don't want you to leave. They'll, they'll try to stop you from leaving. Like I heard, um, the Scientology, the Miscavige, yeah. the, I can't remember his Ron. Ron. Yeah. He was talking about like phys, like actual, um, obstacles to you leaving, like physically, like they're not gonna, you can't get out of the gate, like right. nothing like that. You know, my, they always would say, this is a volunteer army. And if you don't want to be here, then you don't belong here. So it's just the uh, it's the threat of losing everything and everyone. Alienation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Being ostracized by, and just sort of expelled into this world that you believe and have always believed is is evil, and without hope and doomed. So how did you do it? How did like? You you got all your stuff packed. People are coming in. Mm-hmm. They're saying. Yeah, I mean, like they're 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 trying to convince us, but once they understand that we're not being convinced, that that you know they they walked away. So I mean, our, that night our dad dropped us off at a hotel, and then Jesus Christ! Yeah, like it's 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 so immediate that you become this, you become other, you become an outsider. Like in the next morning when we went back, I rang the doorbell. I rang the doorbell to your own house, and I had lived in that house from the day I was born. Whoa! So and, you felt like you had to ring the doorbell. Mm-hmm. Like this is not my world anymore. Yeah. Wow. Grace was like, "Why did you ring the doorbell?" And it was like, "There's there's no other." There's, there is nothing else. Like it's, this is not our home. This is not. So we go and you know we're packing all of our things. It was just, it was awful. Just, a, I had been in those four months. I had been so terrified of, because I kn- knowing what was coming. Like just imagine you're going to lose everyone in your life. That they're just, you're just going to like, you're not going to like how your parents met and fell in love or like your grandparents and family recipes and photos and memories. And what did the house look like? I'm like taking photos and voice recordings and just all the time, like in every, it was just, it's just, it's overwhelming. It's just, um, but did, was there also like a feeling of relief? Was there also a feeling of like, we actually did it. I'm actually doing it. It's actually happening. I'm going to get away from this. I know this isn't real. I know this isn't right. Did you understand that it was a cult? So I was really against, and I still don't tend not to use that word. I mean, it's 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 a fine shorthand, I guess, for some. There are aspects of the church that are not cultish, for sure. Like like, the, like what I just was saying. Like, there's no, they're not trying to get your money. They're not trying to like the not some charismatic leader trying to have sex with everybody's wives and children or whatever. It's like nothing like that. It's but there are definitely aspects that are cultish. The fact that you can't, there is no such thing as agreeing to disagree. Like that's, and the, the penalty for disagreeing uh, is so high. Like, so there are things like that, that, that are definitely cult-like, but, um, but I was definitely, I was not in that, in that moment, I was not 
okay with using that that term for sure right um, it, it was definitely a it, it was it took a lot of time and well it's a derogatory term but what yeah. it represents is an ideology that a group subscribes to it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily have to have all the negative ramifications of an ideology right. for it to fit into the category of a cult right yeah and i and i totally understand that now which is why like you know if somebody says it i i sometimes will will say there are things that aren't cult like and explain what i think is not but I'm also, I don't do it every single time. Like I understand that it's, that it's, uh, so you get all your stuff after you ring the doorbell, you're gone. Mm -hmm. And then how do you like enter into the world? Did you have a job back then? Or did you have a job with the church? It was a job with the church working for the uh, law firm. So it's home job, family life, just, just everything all at once. Um, and then also, of course, you're going into a world that I had just spent my entire life, you know, protesting and, right. and just, it's so crazy when I look back now at, at videos, which I couldn't do for a long time, but there's tons of videos and interviews and documentaries that, you know, where I'm, I'm answering all these questions and I, I, it's, it's crazy to me. Were you there when Louis Theroux came yeah. out to do the documentary? Yeah. Did you talk to him while he was there? Yeah. Both what? times. He, he was, the first time it was, uh, he was really super nice. Um, you know, he came and we were like making egg rolls together and like going bowling and jumping on the trampoline and, and yeah, he would come to pickets and, and it was really funny because like, there, so he came for three weeks, like, but three weeks, like a month, like one month he came for a week and the next month he came for another week and then came again. So the first time, like I didn't know anything about him or who he was really. I mean, I knew he was from the BBC obviously and that, um, but I hadn't seen any of his stuff. And then before he came the next time, uh, I was supposed to be studying for a test or something. I was in college and uh, I was procrastinating. So I look on YouTube and find this documentary that he did. Do do you know the one, the um, white supremacy, the Nazis, Louis and the Nazis? Yeah. So I watched that entire documentary and I was like, ah, like I I know what his uh, angle is. Like it's the, oh, these poor kids, they were raised in this and they don't know any better. And at the time I was kind of indignant because I was like, I, I'm a thinking person, you know, like I, at all my life growing up, like I, I, it was never just like I explained about the soldier's funerals. Like I never just, just went along with something. Like I wanted to understand why I needed to understand that it was scriptural and from the Bible. And so if you could show me that then, but like, I, I'm a, I'm a curious person. So, but I just had never obviously questioned like the, the, most foundational premises of our belief system, which is the Bible is the infallible word of God. And Westboro Baptist Church are the only ones who have who can understand it correctly. Hmm. I just I just never I never really got got past that because if it was in the Bible and it made sense to me, then it was fine. So anyway, so I was kind of indignant when I saw what Louis was trying to do. Like we're just poor children, and and um, so and I went and told my family, and so then everybody you know everybody knew about it. Um, this you know what he was doing. And I remember telling him something about how he was, it was insidious what he was doing because he was not being honest. He was being really friendly, but not being honest about what he really thought about us. Uh, anyway. But what he was, did he say to that? Well, he said, actually, he actually addressed it specifically in the second documentary. He said, you've been saying this, but but I've never pretended to agree with you. I've never, I, I've been pretty, pretty honest about it. Um, and I'm an atheist. I don't believe that what you're doing is right. I don't believe the Bible is the word of God. Da da da. Um, and so I, of course, and he's right. He was exactly right. Um, but I definitely couldn't see it at the time. Um, well, you leave 
you get out and then what do you do? Do you get a job? So I thought immediately, so I, my degree is in finance. So I went through business school, all these people saying, you know, start saving for retirement immediately. Da, da, da. So, and you know, we believed that the doom of the world was imminent. So oh. I never really did that. <laughs> um, so end of days type stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So you were thinking that because of all the sin mm-hmm. one day there's going to be a reckoning and all mm-hmm. the Christians are going to vanish. Yeah. Destruction is imminent was one of our right. signs. Did you guys um, ever watch that movie? Was those those terrible two terrible movies with Kirk Cameron uh, about the apocalypse? God damn it! Left Behind. No. Oh, they're so good. <laughs> you should watch them. You, you just should. said they were terrible. I will watch they them. They are terrible, <laughs> but they're so good. They're so bad that they become like, oh my god, what the fuck is this? Did you ever meet Kirk Cameron? No. I want to meet that dude. Mm, no, I. It's really funny. Uh, you listen to Sam's Sam Harris's podcast. Yes. So his episode with Lawrence Wright, he said something mm. like Lawrence Wright said said something like uh, author of Going Clear, the book on Scientology. Yeah. Yes, yes. He said um, he talks about Freud, the narcissism of small differences, and I was like, oh my god, yes. Like we other Christians, like were some of our our biggest targets, ah. and we it would be like the smallest things. Like for instance, there was like one church that we had some kind of like very little affiliation with in the early days of the picketing, and. Uh, then their women started to cut their hair. Those bitches. Women are, <laughs> women are not allowed to cut their hair. You're not allowed to cut your hair at all? We weren't allowed to cut our hair at all. Yeah, no. Oh, women. my God. That's hilarious. Because of a Bible verse. You know, what women's... does the Bible verse say? Uh, it's First Corinthians 11, 14, I think, actually. It says, uh, a woman's hair is, is her glory. It says, don't you know? Doesn't nature itself teach you that it's a shame for a man to have long hair, but a woman's hair is her glory, and it's given to her for a covering. So... Hmm. And it, and it says uh, long hair, right? So my grandfather interpreted that to mean uncut, which, again, like I, I, I did not, be- we didn't believe in interpretation at the church. So like the the fact that he was adding something into the Bible that wasn't there before, because obviously you can have long hair without right. and still cut it. Yeah. But uh, but it's like if long hair is good, then uncut's better. So end of oh, story. Oh, he had his rules. Mm-hmm. Oh, what about clothes? Like, how do you reconcile with the fact that you're not supposed to wear two different types of cloth? So that, so the the, the church sees this as uh, the distinction between the ceremonial law of Moses and the moral law. So the ceremonial law is like mixed fabrics and keeping kosher. And Isn't it and, like penalty by death of mixed fabrics? I actually can't remember. But, but we just something didn't, preposterous like that. We didn't worry about it though because we thought these passages in the New Testament said you don't have to follow those ceremonial laws. So. Mm. We didn't worry about it. But did you guys spend any time researching the actual history of the New Testament, like how it was constructed? So not, I mean, some, yes, but not really, because in our minds, uh, God is sovereign, right? So the church believes in predestination. So God controls everything and everyone. So So God controlled the construction of the New Testament as well. Exactly, right. Even though it was done by men, it was God's will exactly. to have it be mm-hmm. so it was all god's word yep exactly oh, how convenient mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a nice little loophole. And that's like, you just don't have to you don't have to ask those questions but what about the fact that it's like constantine wasn't even a christian until his deathbed is that because god didn't want it to be that way it's just it, it doesn't it's irrelevant that's it, a it nice was, sweet loophole if you could just mm-hmm. say that it's god's will god knew the entire time don't worry about it but it's a bunch of men wrote it. Yeah, but they did it because God let them do right. it. Right. But then the question is, which version? Right. Which is another question. Like, I I sort of instinctively avoided it. It's like, atheists would ask this question, like, why the King James Version? Yeah. And, uh, you know, 
you can't really answer because Gramps said so. Like, right. that's not, did, did we actually say that my grandfather was the found, like pastor, first pastor, the only pastor for the, you know, founded the West Baptist Church? I don't think we did, but I think everybody kind of knows. Okay, good. Hopefully so when I say, yeah, I just, grandpa, yeah, exactly. grandpa was Gramps. Fred Phelps, was right? Gramps. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, anyway, I just wanted to close that loop. Um, so it's just, oh. but like, what was the, what was the thought process behind like just accepting that kind of stuff? Like, did your grandfather ever bring up? the even older versions of the Bible that they were finding? Like, what was his thoughts on, like, the Dead Sea Scrolls and things along those lines? Just didn't address it. Uh, just because it just it. didn't matter. Because, right. again, just... It's all God's Word anyway. Mm-hmm. It's right. God's will. It's God's Word. Mm-hmm. It's, so, it's so fascinating when someone's so rigid with their belief system. It's like, this is it, and this is... Uh, and as long as you believe that it's all God's will, it's like, oh, well, it's God's will, seriously. Mm-hmm. But the New Testament was written by Constantine, a bunch of bishops, and uh, da, 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 da. God's yeah. will, and God mm-hmm. let him do it. Right, right, right. Oh, okay. And and not just let him do it, but caused him. Caused him. Mm-hmm. Forced it. Yep. Made it happen. Yep. He knows what he's doing. Yep, absolutely. Every every word of our conversation, the church right. would think that this well, is how all... how does God allow all the, you know, sodomy and all the crazy shit going on? Why does God allow that? So, this is why I'm not a Christian anymore. Oh, um, you're confused, and you're like, "What the?" Well, so there's this a passage in Romans nine. Well, it's not. It's not the only reason I should say, but but I have really I have real trouble with this, and I think it's it, it's still hard for me to say. I think this is evil, but I think this is evil. There's this passage in in Romans nine that talks about um, it gives this analogy of God as Potter and humans as clay in His hands, and it uses the example of Jacob and Esau who. In the Bible, Jacob and Esau were twins and says, while they were yet in the womb before either of them had done good or evil, God loved Jacob and hated Esau. And so it paints this picture of God, you know, it says, what if God willing to show his wrath and make his power known endured with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath made for destruction. So it says God created some people as vessels of mercy, people that he loves and others as vessels of wrath made for destruction. So made for the express purpose of destroying them, of torturing them in hell for eternity. So, and then, so he, it's Paul who's writing, he, he paints this picture, God making you do all of the things that you do, and then blessing some and cursing others. And he says, well, you'll, you're going to ask me then, why does God yet find fault for who has resisted his will? Right? So yeah. if God's making you do it, why is he punishing you for it? Right. If God's making you do a horrible thing and you resist his will. You can't resist his will. Right. And so he makes you do it and then he punishes you for it. And the answer is, you don't get to ask that question. Oh. It says, nay, but oh man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? You just don't get to ask that question. And... To me, so this is, I've asked, like, for, I spent a long time talking to Christians uh, and, you know, people of, well, mostly Christians, because it's obviously it's New Testament, so, and, but also talking to Jewish people about the Old Testament and found so many of the, like, interpretations, so many of our beliefs are not, they're not fully supported by, by the Bible and that there are so many different ways of interpreting so many of our, the more destructive of our beliefs. But that one. I have not found any explanation for that passage that's anything that makes any kind of sense that's consistent with the text and and not evil. And I just I didn't I thought I couldn't ask that question for so long when I was at the church, right? I thought I just have to accept this. This is the truth and nothing that I feel or think matters. 
against it. Um, but now I, I can't not right. think. Of course. I can't not ask the questions. Yeah, that's got that had to be so strange. It's also strange when you read the passages in the Bible and they're in thou and thy and you go, wow, like what a weird, like you're reading something in a style of communicating and thinking that we don't even use anymore. Yeah. Like how strange is that? Like how strange, like if you had a conversation with a rational person and they've, they started talking and thou and thy, you'd be like, what do you, why are you using those words? Like what's going on here? Are you okay? <laughs> like, are you a crazy person? Mm. But as long as you're quoting some ancient stuff, you're allowed to do it. Like, and it just, it sort of highlights how bizarre scripture really is and how bizarre these ideological imperatives, these ideological like uh, pathways that are just completely rigid and carved and stone. You have to follow them. But then you're listening. You're like, you don't even, nobody even talks like this anymore. Like this is a, such a strange end. They didn't even talk like that then when they wrote it. Because you're dealing with something that was in ancient Hebrew, and then it was translated to Latin, and it's translated to Greek, and by the time it gets to English, like, boy, what a terrible game of telephone, you know, that right. the grapevine. Right. So it's just these are questions that I never thought I could ask, or that, again, that it didn't matter, because if God or you know foreordained all of it, then, right. then it wasn't relevant. But there's also, a, I mean, like, there is so, and this I was talking to Sam Harris about this this morning, he like there's so many things in the Bible that I find so much good there also. So, and, and like the language is something that like, yeah, I know it sounds so weird to people, but to a lot of people, but uh, like the King James, like I, I grew up, like again, I, my mother was reading this to us every, every night. And so these words, uh, there's actually a passage that says, I found thy like talking to God, I found thy words and I did eat them. And they were unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, right? So it was this thing where, I, I loved it. I, I loved I loved these ideas. I, I thought I thought it was the truth and I thought it was like the definition of goodness because God did it and God said it. And but even now, like there's this one passage that I, I really love. It says, um, by long forbearing is a prince persuaded, and a soft tongue breaketh the bone. That last like that's that's it, it's it's a soft tongue breaketh the bone. That that phrase, I love the imagery. I love the like because, you know, um, I did this TED talk a few months ago and, and, uh, you know, I was in, it, it was kind of about this like modern political discourse, this, this, um, tribalism, this is becoming this, you know, these calcified, you know, positions and, and failures of empathy and, and, uh, like people think that because, you know, they're so sure that they're right, that their position is the right position, they're willing to talk to the other side in ways that, uh, they're just it's just it's terrible it's the way that i did at the church it's the right. way that it's you know that dismissive condescending you know just uh, hostile aggressive right they're angry. the enemy mm-hmm. yeah and that's like it that's also not cult like and people don't respond to it like they respond it's this whole uh complimentary behavior right it's like yeah. somebody approaches you a certain way you tend to respond in kind so if somebody comes to you in kindness and compassion you tend to respond you know in in that that way also and when you are angry and aggressive and hostile like it just elicits the same reaction people get defensive right and uh but that that verse, I, I love that verse. It's a beautiful verse. Mm-hmm. Well, there's obviously some wisdom uh, from what 
those people were writing down and tr- just trying to translate what that wisdom was. And right. there's some really fascinating passages. But to me, it's always been most fascinating as a time capsule. Like when I read it, I'm like, well, regardless of who translated this regard, this is still a thousand year old book mm-hmm. at the very least yep. in terms of, you know, or 2000 years old. Like that alone is really amazing. You're reading the thoughts and the ideas of how someone was perceiving the world 2000 years ago or roughly, you know, it's there's something to it where you're it, it also solidifies in my mind how briefly human beings have been conscious of their time here on Earth. 2000 years ago is not very long. I mean, it seems like an incredibly long time for a person who only lives to be 100. But in terms of the, the age of the, the human race itself, which I think they just backdated again, they found a new discovery where they pushed back the oldest known human being by over 1,000, 100,000 years yesterday. Some new discovery, some new bones. Mm. Mm, wow. So now they know modern human beings have been around for at least 300,000 years. It's probably going to go back even further than that. They don't even know. Mm. But um, but that's so cool. Like I was going to say, I actually think um, Rob Wolf. Oldest homo sapiens species discovered in Morocco. Yeah. What does it say? Time. Okay, yeah. Add 100,000 years to the history of modern human fossils. These bones are from early anatomically modern humans, our own species, Homo sapiens, with a mixture of modern and primitive traits. An international team of anthropologists, paleontologists, and evolutionary scientists report a pair of papers published on Wednesday in the journal Medicine, Journal Nature. Um, evolutionary. What was, what was evolution talk like back at home? Um, we didn't believe it. To how old? What about dinosaurs? Uh, young Earth creationism. One of the elders said something like, um, "God brought baby dinos on the ark." Really? Yeah. I, I. They didn't make it. Yeah. They drown. I don't know. <laughs> we we just it, it's not a we just any time there was any conflict or apparent conflict between the Bible and uh, evidence, you know, physical evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, we just believe the Bible, like, because it's, of course. A, yeah, it's the Bible. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, but what you're saying about like ancient wisdom, like yeah. there was this, uh, so my husband, um, he got super into paleo a few years ago and uh, he read um, John Durant's book, uh, the paleo manifesto. And he made me read one chapter of it and it was called Moses, the microbiologist. And Rob Wolf, I was going to say, Rob Wolf mentioned it on your podcast, whenever that was, a few weeks ago or whatever. Um, And it's so fascinating to, like, when you read Leviticus, like, without the context, uh, you know, the time and and the time that they were living in, um, like, it, a lot of it just seemed, like, I remember whenever we'd be reading this at home, you know, as a family, like, there was just so much of it that just seemed, like, incredibly tedious and, like, what are we supposed to be getting out of this? Like, I don't even understand. So I read this chapter and... It was so like incredible talking about like the Jewish the 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 rules about washing your hands, which is like of course the the simplest and most effective form of uh, you know hygiene and, and prevent you know preventing pathogens and and uh, infectious disease. Anyway, it's like super fascinating like how how many of those laws make sense like what you were allowed to eat and what you weren't allowed to eat because sure. of uh, because of um, not eating pigs. There's all sorts of pa- parasites they carry. Right, and then not eating like cats because cats eat like rodents who also carry anyway but it's like it's super there's so much detail in there and it was 
it's incredibly fascinating. So like there's when you think about like just the history of humanity and how this book has shaped people's lives for so long, it's 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 really uh, it's really it's really fascinating. Well, it is a, an amazing piece of historical literature. You know, I mean, and it's amazing that so many people have not to use the term, but use it as gospel. I mean, it's the right term, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just, I always feel strange whenever I read it. Whenever I read it, I feel strange. Like thinking about all the momentum and all the history that has been altered by these words and by the application of these words and your own history. I mean, your own life was essentially g- guided by the application of the interpretation of these words that were thousands of years old. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is bizarre. But then what's even more bizarre to me is that Twitter's what snaps you out of it, is that interacting with people through online, was this open forum exchange of ideas, and especially in Twitter where it's this 140-character limit. Yeah, that's it. it it really bugs me that Twitter gets such a bad rap. Because ah, really it has saved me. your life. <laughs> you should have a t-shirt that says Twitter saved my life. I, 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 I think I might actually do that. I, actually, <laughs> I went to Twitter actually a year ago and I'm going next week too. Um, I'm joining their Trust and Safety Council. Oh, really? Yeah. That always sounds so Orwellian I to know, me. And I, I found know. out some of the people that are on it and they're, they're full of shit. Uh, There's I don't, a lot of BS social justice warrior nonsense mm, going on in that I'm council. I'm not... I'm definitely not on the censorship or, you know, trying to like stop people. Like shadow I think open, banning people. I and think so. I don't, I just don't know enough about all of that right, stuff. Like, so I'm, I'm, but obviously like I'm definitely on the side of, of, I mean, I want people to be able to control their experiences on Twitter, of course. Like, so, I mean, you should be able to like, um, you should definitely be able to block people and mute yeah. people and all that stuff. That's all yeah. well and good. Right. That's what I mean. But, like, so you should control your experience, but like trying to stop people from, cause like, obviously if somebody's when it's, when it's criminal, when people are threatening and it's right. violence and threats of violence, like, yes. I think that of course should be illegal. It, it, it's illegal. Sure. It shouldn't be allowed on the platform, but I agree. And harassment, if you're harassing people or trying to get people to harass people, mm. like soliciting harassment right. to others, like, Hey, let's go, go after yeah. Megan. She doesn't believe in the God's word anymore let's go get her right like those kind of organ using the platform for any sort of a fucked up way like that yeah yeah but i'm obviously much more on the side of like the importance of the marketplace of ideas and being able to it's everything mm -hmm, absolutely because people so many people we we come to these we come to bad ideas in so many different ways sometimes we argue ourselves there sometimes we're influenced by other people but the way out of it isn't to pretend or to, to, to push it out of the public sphere it's to engage it to shed light on it and to publicly argue against it so that other people who might be tempted or starting to go down that path will understand in other words we need to have people who can articulate and defend good principles and to argue against bad ones so that the good ones will rise to the top absolutely i mean that's everything that's human discourse in general and that's one of the main problems with really rigid ideologies is there's no room for that and then you just like it's god's word and this is it and you just have to trust it and there's baby dinosaurs on the ark and you just gotta go okay mm-hmm. and because of that 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 like i have a friend who's mormon and she was mormon for a long time and then she they just sort of like drifted away they decided it was kind of silly, and then mm-hmm. they, they read into the church, and they started like, oh, what? how did this get started? And they, they just decided maybe we should s- spend some time away. And so they eventually left. And one of the things that she said that was really fascinating, she said, um, I'm really susceptible to like, 
like someone who's a bullshit artist. So like she's like I'm easily influenced, like too much so. She's like growing up in this fundamental environment, this fundamentalist you know where you don't question anything and you just go along with the word she goes it, it leaves me really vulnerable to like being influenced and i was like wow that is fascinating she's like i'm really gullible i'm like wow yeah it's like her her structure of how she her questioning muscles were like wobbly and weak and atrophy they just mm-hmm. didn't have any pep to them that's exactly the word i use also about the decision making because if somebody else is always yes. making the decisions like you never have to like the answer is already there for you you don't have to figure it out for yourself so on both of those fronts like when after my sister and i left it was this sort of like more or less constant you know processing and tr- and asking these questions so like i would have these so for instance uh like back to uh, gay people after we left right so uh i got a, this guy wrote an open letter like he'd been somebody that i had sparred with on twitter quite a bit um and threatened to pick it but never actually did he wrote an open letter after uh and my sister and i published this statement essentially just this short explanation that you know we had left and that we regretted hurting people and that uh we were trying to find a better way to live basically just right. because we'd been so public at the church it, it seemed like we had to, it, it seemed like, and also well, it's complicated, but anyway, so we, we did this. Right. He writes this open letter in response and invited us to church over at um, Hollywood United Methodist Church. Ah. Uh, and he, this, he was gay. He is gay. Um, and He's a gay churchgoer? He is, yeah. And how does he recon- reconcile all I, the anti-gay stuff? I was going to say, so you, you said, um, you know, earlier, like just the accepting, like whatever you find in the Bible, so you therefore you have to accept it and just go along with it, no matter you know what evidence or whatever uh, seems to contradict it or whatever. I was going to say, like, I encountered people for the first time, including. Uh, um, actually, I'm actually not sure how he reconciles it. I think it has to do with the love of Jesus and and you know grace and you know just that's the Old Testament and and mm. whatever. I'm not exactly. Doesn't I, the New Testament reference it? It does. It does. Mm-hmm. Homosexuality, right? Yeah. So I, I honestly don't really know. Uh, just like, la, 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 not the same. <laughs> well, so that's what I was going to say. Like, I remember encountering for the first time Christians who were willing to say, like, yeah, I know the Bible says that, but I, I think that applied at a different time, or I just don't believe that. Well, like, I know a dude, I know, I know more than one, mm-hmm. that has uh, an Old Testament Bible quote tattoo. Mm-hmm. Like, hey. You got to read the whole book, man. It says don't get tattooed. <laughs> like, you can't just yeah, yeah. You can't go, God, I'm really into what you're saying. Like, no, you're not. Right. You're not even listening. <laughs> but like that, like, I think that's, it's, it's honest, right? Like yes. th- to be able to, to say like, yes, I, I, I think this is good. And to, but to have the wherewithal to say like, yeah, this, this is good and this is wrong. There's a, a Bible verse actually that says, hate the evil and love the good. Mm. And I love that. I mean, and well, I don't want to say hate, like I'm talking about, I'm not never, it's never about, for me, it's about people. It's about ideas. Like, I think there are a lot of bad ideas. Uh, and so I try to, well, anyways. That, there are a lot of bad ideas and there's a lot of people that get defined by bad ideas. And I think in that, in that way, the Bible is a lot like people in that like, you could take a really good person who does something stupid, does something wrong, does something mm-hmm. bad. And it doesn't mean they're a bad person. You can't say, like, you are this time you ran this red light and hit that car. Or you are this mm-hmm. time where you whatever, – whatever you did that you shouldn't have done, that you right. may have done impulsively or what, for whatever reason. Right. Like, that doesn't necessarily define you. It's a moment in mm-hmm. your life. But we love to find moments like that and say, that's you. 
Tiger Woods. I, that is you. You are bad. Mm-hmm. I don't like you now. I hate yeah. you. Like no matter what you do in the future, you will be defined by this moment that you got drunk and drove mm-hmm. a car or whatever the fuck yeah. it is. It, it's it's so frustrating, and you know now like like the, we we the tendency now on. Did you read John Ronson's book? Yes, you did. I hear he yes. had you. Yeah. The, so you've been publicly shamed. Yes. Like that that tendency that we love like, it. To, well, and to my family, like this, this, it's, it's, it was incredibly judgmental, like even within the church, um, it became even more so, um, towards the end of, you know, before my sister and I left where like it, everything, we, this is the way that my sister and I started talking about it after we left. It was like, it's like everything that looks bad is bad. And everything that looks good is also bad. Like you, once you, if you can, if you identify a person as some kind of troublemaker or, you know, you, you can just read into the worst intentions and motives when it's, it's just as likely that it's, it it isn't that like to generalize the worst. Oh yeah. Sorry. Sorry. It's getting under your jaw. And so we're losing some of the sound. Sorry. Sorry. That's okay. I kind of talk a little bit soft too sometimes. Um, but you just don't want to generalize the worst about people and, and, and make it, make that their entire identity. Right. And there's a tendency to do that with people that are also they're they're terrified of scrutiny coming their way. So what they do is they cast it all out on others instead of looking internally, instead of looking at their own actions, and they like to find a fault in a person, and then that is their main focus. And you see people doing that. That is why tabloid journalism is so fascinating. You go to the supermarket, and you know, you know, Matt Lauer's doing cocaine. Oh, look at that! You know, it's like right there in front of you. Whether or not it's real, who knows? But it's like, oh, I want to see how he got caught. Right. What did he do wrong? What right. did this person do? He's doing drugs or whatever. Whatever mm-hmm. anybody's doing, she's leaving him for her. <gasps> she's right. a lesbian, and this mm-hmm. all this stuff that we love when someone is someone did something bad then everybody's watching it mm-hmm. we love it yeah. because we all know there's just some creepy shit that we've done that if somebody found it and then everybody started talking about it, you'd be horrified so mm-hmm. when you see someone getting caught publicly shamed and then this giant pile on it's very attractive to us in some weird way and almost cathartic and almost a relief that it's not us yeah, you know? but it's so dangerous, right? Because it is. Th- when when you make it, when the penalty for speaking up and possibly misstepping in these very, and, and I don't, the whole idea of like microaggressions, like I, like fundamentally, like it's this, like, and I understand, like, I'm not saying like, I think it's really important. Like I've said this so many times, like how we talk to people, like it matters how you talk to people. But if we're always looking for, for offense we're gonna find it right and so but so the problem is like when you know people say something maybe not quite in exactly the right way or they like the way that we punish people like when we make the penalty so high you know for so just to go back to john's john ronson's book the justine sacco you know she tasteless joke on twitter to her 170 followers or whatever and then it blows up and her entire life is over yeah people don't know the story what do you remember the joke uh, yeah, I'm going to South Africa. Hope I don't get AIDS. Uh, just kidding. I'm white. Yeah, exactly. Right. And right. that turned her life inside out. Right. And I don't mean to say like, I'm not saying like, I'm just saying that there has to be more to get biblical grace. Like there's, yes. there's this, uh, there's this writer that I love actually. Uh, and she says that, uh, the language of public discourse has lost, uh, the, the how does she put it? It's public discourse has lost the language of generosity. 
Like, mm. and that I think that's really it's really terrible. But like, so when we make the cost of misspeaking or or of of maybe not saying things in exactly the right way, like when you make that cost so high, what it does is it pushes out moderates, and what you end up with is people on both you know two ends of you know, these extremes, and they're the only ones talking. And then it yeah. just it just again reinforces this this you know calcification and us them and you know tribalism and and it's 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 dangerous. Like, I think you're a hundred percent right. I also think there's something that's going on where when you see someone do something really stupid like Kathy Griffin holding up a head of Donald Trump, I think we realize that in our worst day, with our worst thought process, worst circumstances, that could easily be us. In, in the worst, if you grew up in a fucked up way or you have some imbalance in your personal life or maybe you have some chemical imbalance or you're depressed or... And then you make a poor judgment call or you get reinforced by other people around you that are fools as well. The next thing you know, you're doing something dumb. Mm -hmm. And that is that's why we like watching people balance and do handstands on the top of buildings, because mm -hmm. we know that we've taken risks. We know we've done something stupid. You can identify those aspects of human behavior in other folks. And when they're doing something particularly terrible, there's a certain amount of relief that it's not you. And there's a certain amount of fascination of how will this play out and a certain how is this person going to recover from this? All that mm -hmm. stuff is very, very intoxicating to us as these tribal animals that live together and understand how valuable it is to have the love and support of your peers. And then that hate is so dangerous. The ostracizing of the, a person from the group, the alienation of them from the social community, the, the, the knowledge that they have that people are talking about them all the time in an evil way. Mm. Kathy Griffin, she's on American. She's going to burn in hell and all this. That is going to be just eating away at her. And we know it. And it's one of the reasons why we like to concentrate on it. There's a, a certain amount of weird sort of voyeurism that's involved in any any sort of a public misstep that people have and the, then the pile on by and a lot of people are just very very unhappy with their lives and so when someone else does something screwed up that they can take away some of the focus of their own missteps and focus it on this person and and throw rocks and there's also just the sense of of i mean righteousness yeah right the self-righteousness sure. the the um and this is why there's a. Did you see Sarah Silverman's new Netflix special? No, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, so she gets to a point and she's talking about like going out to a picket, a Westboro picket. Uh, and oh, wow. And I, I actually had seen. She talked about this on Bill Maher a few years ago too. And I just remember, like, I, I knew her as this like. I didn't really, I of course, know her anything specific except her her comedy. She seemed kind of just kind of loud and and a little. I don't know. She would say things that would always make me cringe. Like just very like like very blunt and so you listen to her comedy while you're in the church a little like not Did a you lot have to sneak it no like they're they're really like they're constantly they call themselves they're the watchers right so they are looking around the landscape and seeing like how the word of god applies to all these people they have to in order to to comment on what's going on they have to know what's going on so what people are saying and and the trends and 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 things um so so yeah so i when i saw her on bill Moore, i expected her to be I don't know, like hostile and, and whatever about the church when she started talking about them. But what she said, uh, what she said was, at least on the, on the special, the way she put it was, I am them. Like she went out and was, was talking to members of, of my family. And, you know, she said, we have to see them as human. 
and she was like kind to them on the picket line, like told a, she said, I told a duty joke or whatever, you know, trying and the picketer, I guess one of my cousins or something like snickered, you know, when she, when she makes this joke, uh, we have to see them as human and then maybe they'll start to see us as human. And the way she put it on the, on the Netflix special was I, I am them. Like I am the product of my experiences and so are they. And you know, the only way you can, you know, change those things is to add to the, those experiences, like to introduce, like David did on Twitter with me and my husband, like introduce these ideas in ways that, that people can actually hear them and, and be moved by them. Yeah, so we I, love to categorize people into these rigid boxes that are unchangeable and that you are this person and you will always be this person. You are my enemy and you think this and you think that and you're a, a dirty liberal and you're a disgusting Republican. And we have these weird ideological boxes that we love to shove people into. That's a perfect example of that. I mean, if they were little kids and they grew up in that church and they're seven years old, do we really believe that they would have the wherewithal and the understanding of the, the full spectrum of human behavior to say that this is wrong mm-hmm. and that we shouldn't be protesting at this gay person's funeral and we shouldn't be holding up these signs that say God hates fags? Does God hate fags or not? Like, are you right, Grandpa? Mm-hmm. Like, who, who would have the mind? What's incredibly brave is that you, deep into your 20s, have this revelation and then have the courage to escape. And so I want to get back to that. Like, what was your job? Like, what, did, what was the first job you got? Uh, so I didn't get a job immediately. I thought I had to. I thought I have to be responsible. Like, of course, I'm with my sister. Like, we had some money saved. Just We lived at home. We didn't have a lot of expenses. Like, we, we used our money to travel across the country picketing, but we, we still we still had some money. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> so we got to get out there and piss people off. <laughs> well, we, and it was, it was the, I thought it was the greatest. Like, I thought, like, it was always exciting. Like, oh, are you going on this picket trip? Yeah, I'm going to Los Angeles. Oh, We're my God. Scientology. So it was just like a part of life. Yeah. You guys used to picket Scientology? A little. That's hilarious. Yeah, and we're doing it in Clearwater once too. It was super boring. Like there was nobody out there. <laughs> <laughs> you got to rank the pickets by like <sighs> I don't know. George W. Bush's second inauguration was like insane. Oh, was it? And there's like Scientology. Oh yeah, that was like post nine eleven. Must have yeah. been really rough to yeah. hold up those signs. Yeah, especially we had a sign that said "Thank God for nine eleven. Oh God, damn it! And it was like we were stationed like at the intersection of these three streets, and they were blocked off for the parade. So like he finishes his inauguration speech, and this like huge crowd of people, like hundreds of that whatever, how many? Thousands, oh my God! Thousands of people like flood down this thing, and then they're stuck in this. In this intersection waiting to go right past us on this sidewalk and so there was like this uh no they're seeing this like thank god for 9-11 and it was right after the tsunami too uh so my mom had a was holding the thank god for the tsunamis or whatever and um like so people are just enraged by the time they actually got to us so like we're standing like right at the edge of these barricades like so on the other side is the parade route and so like you know people were like jumping like some guy jumped on my back like and one another like stealing signs and like jumped on your back yeah like so i'm but i was like leaning over the barricade so he couldn't steal my signs sorry i'm not getting away from the mic and uh so like one of my cousins actually like gave his signs to another church member and then was like standing on top of a trash can like going come on you guys like just just don't worry about them they're not worth it they're not worth it like like, this is my cousin who was you know 
just because it was so it got so physical like you know people and like the cops so like, he was saying you guys aren't worth it he was trying to yeah pretending, pretending like he, he was, was one not of them. yeah exactly oh wow yeah so that, that, one, that one got pretty yeah pretty got pretty dicey but did it get violent like it, the guy who it, jumped on your back like what did he do so he, i will i'm holding my signs and i'm like like i've tucked myself into this barricade so like there's nothing else he can do right so he and there was like there was i should also say there were cops just on the other side of the barricade just like like every five feet there was a cop. I think there was said there was like maybe fourteen thousand cops in DC that day because it was first inauguration after nine eleven. So anyway, but so I mean, the, and the cops were mostly just standing there. Like I look over, the, the guy gets off, and um, look, my my brother is standing next to me, who's seven or eight, eight years. So he would have been like early twenties, and uh, um, this. I see, and then he jumped over the barricade because the way people were coming after us, and this cop like pulls out a, a you know club to and making us get back over the barricade, like jump back over on the other side, like with these people who were and not really doing anything. But it. it but I did you saying, expect the cops to risk their lives, even though you're obviously provoking people? I mean, you're obviously putting yourself in a situation where you're saying something incredibly insulting. And just devastating to all these people that lost friends or loved ones on 9-11 or in the tsunami or mm-hmm. or have family members that are gay. Right. I mean, did you guys really expect the cops are going to take the beating for you or the cops are going to get involved? Oh, oh, for sure. I mean, we thought that. <laughs> it was like, it's their job, right? But if they didn't, you would <laughs> never do what you did then, right? Like, what if, what if someone passed some sort of a law saying, listen, you guys know what you're in for. We have no desire to help you. There would be no police presence. Would you still protest? Well, we did that. And some, some cops did respond that way. Did some, they say, like, there will be no pre- police presence whatsoever? Mm-hmm, yeah. And, and some... Where was that at? Can't remember. Right? But it happened... But more than once? More than once, yeah, for sure. And, uh, like, sometimes the cops would, we'd say, we're going to come to protest this, you know, something. And, and they would say... You know, you can come, but you can't hold that sign, or you can't. They would step, tell you step on the flag or whatever. Sometimes they would tell us in advance. Sometimes they would wait till we got there. You guys there. Would step on the flag. Yeah, like we desecrating the flag was a big. We saw it as an idol, and you know the American flag is an idol. Actually, my mom got arrested. I had a. We were in Nebraska, and um, uh, my little brother. We were protesting a soldier's funeral, and we were like far away from the church. Um, but there was a, a group of people on the other side of the street and they were you know, all holding American flags all the way from, from the road, all the way up this, you know, the long entry to the, to the church. So we were quite far away. And, uh, my brother was nine years old at the time and he did what he always did, which was, uh, you know, put down, lay the American flag on the ground and stand on top of it and hold a picket sign. <sighs> and within like a couple of minutes, uh, like nine cops showed up, uh, and started talking about arresting my mother, uh, for, flag mutilation and contributing to the delinquency of a minor. And uh, so before they do the arrest, you know, again, my mom and my uncle were both there and they are both lawyers. And my uncle was like, uh, you know, Johnson versus Texas, the Supreme Court said in that case that uh, you can even, you can mutilate, not only can you mutilate a flag, you can even burn it. And, uh, and that's perfectly lawful. And one of the cops was like, we're not in Texas, we're in Nebraska. So, like, this is obviously a Supreme Court case, so it's, and he said, Supreme Court has jurisdiction all over the country. So, in other words, I guess what I'm saying is, like, the the way that so, sometimes the they did, sometimes there were really good cops who did their job and were super professional and didn't let their beliefs about our, you know, religious beliefs or their what they thought about our message get in the way of them doing their job, but... Sometimes they did. Sometimes they would threaten to arrest, you know, my our parents if they brought children. They would take their children away from them, you know, things like that. But, 
but we absolutely expected them to to do their jobs like that that was and this is the supreme court yeah i mean i know you're not justifying it but it's from the point of view of something like me Mm. uh someone like me i i would say don't bring any cops there no if you if you start that kind of shit at a funeral or for a soldier and a bunch of people come by and beat your ass well then don't do that again because you're pissing people off and you're hurting their feelings and you're dealing with someone who's already emotionally scarred. Those cops need to be out there stopping robberies and, you know, breaking and enterings into people's houses and carjackings. And that's what they're supposed to be doing. They're not supposed to be, like, helping out people who are intentionally provoking and emotionally uh, d- disturbing people. Right. But, I mean, so, obviously, from the church's perspective, it's like this. It's These are sincerely held religious beliefs. And the right. First Amendment... Like, what good is the First Amendment? Like, this obviously this. Uh, but it's not a First Amendment issue. Like, the but because the it's no one in an official position is saying you cannot speak. Well, so uh, to compare that to like the campus. What's going on on these campuses, right? Where right. so you think that the cops shouldn't be there to protect those people? Well, they're they're provoking people and making them angry. Well, right? it's a different sort of a scenario. Um, I think the cops should definitely be there to prevent violence on campus for several reasons. One reason, because I think you're dealing with very young, very impressionable people who make very poor choices and feel justified because they're around a bunch of people that also have like-minded ideas, a lot of peer pressure, a lot of um, diffusion of responsibility that comes from these mass groups of people that are acting and the mob mentality that comes along with that. I think it's very very important to protect them from themselves and it's a hot button issue i think protesting at a soldier's funeral is just gross i agree with you yeah i mean i know you do yeah i know you do i mean but i'm just saying like i don't think the cops have a responsibility to save you from being gross yeah i just i i don't know i mean obviously this was a supreme court case it became a did you know that that it this there was a case where we were sued by the the church and yeah i do remember that how, and how that play out uh, it it went all, first they they won a ten point nine million dollar verdict against us at the trial court and then it was reversed at the appeals court and the supreme court said eight to one they have it's the constitutional right for them to do this this is right. their religious beliefs they have a right they were especially because I mean sometimes I will say like I I described to you that very first picket soldiers funeral picket that I went to like that was very close quarters you know it, mm-hmm. we were right up on top of them like if we had chosen to sing or what you know that. You know, they would have heard us. But in a lot of instances, we were way far, far away. Like in that, in the instance that went to the Supreme Court, they were more than a thousand feet away. There was like a hill. The, right. the, they, the family didn't see church members, you know, things like that. It, there was, uh, so, I mean, they have a right to do it. Who I, has a right? Well, the, the church. I mean, right. okay. I mean, they have a right to decide. They have a right to do it. To say horrible things about someone who just died or who, someone who lost a son or a daughter in war. Yeah. I think, obviously, I, I don't, I think it's terrible that they do do it. And that was actually one of the things, you know, before my sister and I left, that was one of the, I wasn't going to hold a sign that I didn't believe was true. And I wasn't going to go to any more funeral protests. Right, but do you think that the police should? I mean, they're they're operating on tax dollars, and it's a, a limited amount of resources. Well, we're tax. I mean, we're taxpayers, right. right? I mean, sure you are, but do you think that the resources should? It's go hard to, to get that, out of the, the we mentality, thing, right? Yeah. I know, I know. I'm. I, but do you think that really that the cops that's the an, uh, an intelligent and adequate and fair use of resources to go and protect a bunch of troublemakers? 
So it depends on what, how do you how do you feel about the First Amendment? Like the, it's 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 the principle of the thing rather than mm-hmm. the applications. Like this right. is just one application. Like so. So who's to decide exactly, whether or not it's that's, right? That's the whole idea. Like so, who what we have not entrusted our government to decide what opinions are acceptable and what aren't. So they they don't they they don't get to have like so. Right, but it seems like you're organizing this. So if you're you organizing this sort of uh, antagonistic display where you know you're gonna. Hurt we know we're going to make people mad. a very dangerous time. Right. Don't you think you should hire your own security? Like, why should the police have to be there to secure you? Because because this it's the law. Like, they they are supposed to, you know, protect. Like, the again, what, what good are... So, First Amendment rights, right? The, like, to be able to, to say it's... It doesn't protect popular speech, right? Because right. popular speech doesn't need protection. Unpopular speech needs protection. So, it's just... Again, it's the but the police are really there to enforce laws. Well, they're the law is you don't get to punch protection. somebody, right? right? But they're they're just assuming but you know, that if you something know, is going to go bad. Okay, so for instance, like go, just back to the campus thing for a second. Right. You have these people who have announced we're going to go protest this person. We're not going to let them speak, even though they've been granted permission by the you know mm-hmm. everybody. Like they're going, they should be able to speak, right? right. We're not going to let them speak because we don't like their message. So if the cops know that that's going to happen. Like so, so what happens? Like I'm just trying to. They don't compare do anything this. about it. They let them shut it down. Um, but I'm saying I, I think that's wrong. I think they sh- they should be able. They should go and like. So this is what. So they, you think the cops a heckler's should be able veto to- is what it's called, right? I think in in, in like the, the cops can't say. Well, obviously this is still back to like. It's not if the cops say, well, you can't speak because you're likely to cause a riot or people to you know some some kind of disturbance. Like they're not allowed to do that based on like if it's just this is religious opinion. We weren't saying we want you to hurt us. We're not trying to provoke you to hurt us. We're trying to deliver this message that we think is the truth of God. Right. So it wasn't there's a difference between like deliberately provoking and inciting violence, like deliberately inciting violence and what we were doing, which was, you know, trying to proclaim this message that we thought was the truth our goal wasn't violence. Like we didn't want violence. That's why we contacted the cops. Right. right. I we weren't going to attack them, and and we didn't want to be attacked. We just wanted to be able to exercise our rights without fear of, without fear of, of violence. That that's that's the principles of of our democracy. Right. Um. So I see what you're saying, and I think that it's it's it gets a little weird when we're talking about people giving speeches on campus and then having other people shut down those speeches. Because I think that the people who are protesting have as much right, especially if it's in their school, they have as much right to voice their concern for this message as the person does to distribute that message. And if the police come along and say, we're going to shut down the distribution of this message, most of the time they do it when things are out of hand. So an excellent tool for someone who's trying to silence people is to make sure that things get out of hand. I mean, Which is why so that having the cops present right. like, and, and letting both sides have their voices without res- the ability to resort to violence. So this mm-hmm. is the whole idea. Like we would in these letters that would go out to the cops was that the idea of having a buffer zone like a, like yes we're going we want to proclaim our message we want you to be out there too like we loved and honestly we loved it when counter protesters were there because it just brought more attention to our message yeah which was- i understand that but i just think that you shouldn't obviously it's not you anymore but i just do not think that anybody especially from an offensive group like that should be able to allocate resources that are public use like well, police well so we like obviously you, we didn't make the decision obviously like 
we didn't make the decision to right. for them to like they decide like okay well is this likely going to like so they can either right. be proactive and set the buffer zone or be reactive like we're calling the cops because we're getting punched right. or whatever and because like they're going to go out no matter what so we we when even when they would say we're not going to protect you where we would go right i mean there were obviously there were rare situations where uh so for instance like uh when Gabby Giffords was shot in Arizona, uh, we had a couple of um, an FBI agent actually and a, a guy from the local police department come and say like, "You shouldn't go," and because there, there was a nine-year-old girl who had been killed. Yeah. And the church said they were going to protest her funeral. Oh Jesus! And uh, so they said, "I don't think we can protect you like this. It's too volatile. It's too." Uh, and so in that case, we didn't. Act, we actually didn't go. That's kind of a chicken shit response. <laughs> Actually, no. I was going to say, uh, like, so, so the, the thing is, so I was there during this conversation and I heard my mom was explaining that we weren't going to go. Um, it actually had more to do with logistics. Like we couldn't get there, like plane tickets and whatever. Like we just couldn't get there. So it was like, okay, like, that's God. fine. Like I hear you. But you're like, so reasonable. It's so fascinating to talk to you. Because you're such a, an intelligent, reasonable person. It's almost impossible for me to imagine until I see like the little bit of resistance to the idea of this being a First Amendment issue and the police there. Then you kind of go back to the church. I could see it boil <laughs> up inside of you. Well, it's just like I, we were talking about this a, a little bit ago. I mean, just the whole the importance of discourse in the marketplace of ideas. This is one. Yeah. Like, like again, I, I, I just think it's so important and I think it's important, you know, because obviously my own personal experience makes me such a believer in, well, you've gone on a journey through free speech mm-hmm. that most people never experience free speech that you don't even agree with anymore. Right. Yeah. Which is even more crazy. So let's go back to your first job. What was it? <laughs> what was the first job? Um, I worked at a, um, very briefly, like, so I should say my sister and I, we were in, it was a couple months before I actually got a job. Um, we spent the first month with um, a cousin of mine who had left the church a few years earlier. She lived really close. Still. She had left as well. Yeah. So you guys knew some people had made it out. Right. But like the thing is, it, there's there's so many, my sister calls them mind fucks, right? So like the thing about people who leave is that they are demonized more than anybody else, like even more than gays or Jews or any other outsider. It's ex-members who get the worst you hear the worst things about them because wow. they knew the truth and they rejected it, right? So I was, when it when, it, when I thought of leaving, like the last thing on my mind was that I could go to an ex-member. I thought, you can't trust them, they're right. evil. Like So it's it's just this whole, um, there's intensely negative, instinctive reactions to, to those things. But obviously I overcame it and I reached out to her a few weeks before we left and she was amazing. Like within, I hadn't talked to her in three and a half years and had said all kinds of terrible things, you know, about her, um, after she left. But, um, but she was wonderful. Uh, and she said like within like 30 seconds of like when I, when she understood that I was, you know, planning to leave, uh, I want you to come live with me. And it was, it was amazing and, uh, so kind. And so, I lived there for about a month. Um, my sister was still in school, so she was. We were traveling back to Can to Topeka. Sorry, it's like so. It's a half an hour from my cousin's house. And, you know, four days a week while she was still in school, and so we but we were constantly running into our family, driving by the pickets because they picket every day in Topeka several times a day, and uh, like at the grocery store and on campus, and so it was just we needed to get away. So we ended up going to Deadwood, South Dakota. Um, my brother had been a fan of the TV show, and. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> and uh, it just seemed like a, a nice, quiet like place. So how be. many people went with you? It was you, your sister, and your brother? It, n- no, it was just just you and your sister. Me and my sister, yeah. Did anybody else join you after a while? I have a brother who left uh, about a year and a half after my sister and I did. Wow. And I have another brother who left about eight years before I did. Wow. Mm-hmm. So now there's seven. There's 11 kids. So seven are still at home and four of us are out. <sighs> Do you talk to them? Yeah, the the people who are out. Yeah. What about the people that are in? No, they they won't have anything to do with us. Wow. It's just like I talk to your mom. No. No. Uh, sh- they. I. But the thing is, like, so back to Twitter. Like, that's how I know what they what they're up to. Like, I I see photo. Like, they post photos. Like, I'm I've been watching my little brothers grow up on through photos on Twitter, and you know, see what my parents, what how my mom is saying. It's awful. I mean, it's, it's, I'm glad, I'm so glad to be living now and not, you know, before social media where I can actually see these things and, and know what they're up to and, and a little bit about how they're do doing. Do you want to reach out? I, I do. You do? Yeah. I mean, I do on, on Twitter, you know, this is great about Twitter. Um, sometimes like I have, they blocked me on my main account. Um, they block you? Not all of them, but a lot of them. Did your mom block you? Uh, she actually created, she, she got kicked off of Twitter at one point, so she had to create a new account. <laughs> so she didn't block me on her new account yet. Um, but, but she uh, blocked you in her old account? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's um, deep. Yeah. Like when the, your mom blocks you on Twitter, it's that's a, It's intense. a big thing, right? <sighs> when it's you really look terrible. and you see that you're blocked, what is that, what is that lump in your throat like? Just what you'd imagine. Like, it, I, I can't believe, like, it's so hard to think back to, like, I was incredibly close with my mom, and I, I love her, and I miss her. Like, I, I'm, I used to make coffee for her every morning, and, like, we'd go on walks together, and we'd when walk arm in arm. spoke to her? Um, well, actually, I I saw her at a picket a little over a year ago. She Jeez. didn't She didn't say anything to me. She didn't even talk to you? No, she, she couldn't. Like, a baby that came from her body, loved you and raised you. She can't like it's there. It's it's so like when I think about like when I was at the church and this is one of the hardest things to articulate. I mean to that the feeling of like when somebody leaves like there is no interaction. So some people would ask like, well, what if you saw her at such a place, you know, wherever at the grocery store or whatever? Like, what what would you say? They would ask me this while I was still at the church, and it, it, it's so it's like. Uh, I, the only thing I can compare it to is like, it's like dividing by zero. Like the situation does not exist. Like there's nothing there. The idea of trying to talk to her, it, it, it is impossible. Right. And, and that's so crazy. That's the cult. That's yeah, the cult exactly. Part, for yeah, sure. yeah. Yeah. It's the, like in Jehovah's witnesses, they call it a uh, disfellowshipping. Right. Yeah, they all have it. Excommunication. Scientology has mm-hmm. it. They all have it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of the ways they control people. The fear of alienation is And the fear of becoming strong. like them. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So they'll talk to gay people. They'll talk to people with rainbow shirts on. Mm-hmm. They'll talk to ex-soldiers. They'll talk to those people. Mm-hmm. They won't talk to you. Right. That's insane. But this is... Uh, one of get your mono on acid. Why not? <laughs> <a> doser. <laughs> um, one of the like great things about Twitter... and. And I just the internet in general is that it's a thing where, so like they obviously like my little brothers for instance like they are you know hearing all this bad stuff about you know my sister and me anybody who leaves they they'll hear bad things about us 
But the good thing about the internet is that they can go on, they can go to my Twitter account and see what I'm actually saying. So it, I'm still, I go through these phases where like I, 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 I will tweet and then I get like, I, I can't, I just like the, the, fear of judgment i guess for my family and i just i just choose to focus on other things and not post things on twitter but like i still i follow them on this other account that i created that's not blocked right and it's just wbc accounts so like and i see like things that they say and uh like doctrines that i now believe are unscriptural and so like i will tweet them you know verses like that i what this contradicts you like and try to like basically doing what i was doing for them now against them like just in this right in these instances and and so there is some engagement a little bit with my family on twitter because especially because of any like anything that i do publicly so maybe something about this i don't know but like when my ted talk came out there was a couple of articles and like people were tweeting it a lot and and uh so my uncle and my aunt both were tweeting tweeting me and tweeting about me and so i was you know we're having this repartee i guess like just you know going back and forth about these these bible verses and and debating and so all of that stuff is it's it's i I hope well at some point hopefully we'll have we'll have some effect and in some ways it it already has so like the day that i left there was a we're gonna get to that job sometime soon (laughs) (laughs) don't worry about it the day Um, you left the day that I left, my one of my cousins, you know, came into my bedroom while I was crying and packing, and I was asking, like, just very calmly, like, this is my best, my best friend. She was a year older than me, is a year older than me, and uh, she's asking me why we're leaving, and I'm describing a lot of things, and one of the, I described specifically two signs. Uh, one of them was the death penalty for fags, and another one was fags can't repent, and uh, she sent me a message the next morning and like I, I was describing verses that I thought, you know, contradicted those two signs. And, uh, the following morning she sent me a message, a text message super early in the morning, just like, uh, just chewing me out basically like that, that I know that, that Leviticus and Romans one, like the death penalty, like there's no, there's, you have no argument. Like, so, so what's your, really your problem? And, uh, so, and then for a while after I left, like those signs were like everywhere. Like she's holding my cousin changes her profile picture on Twitter to her holding those two signs, like screaming into the camera and like yeah. one of the elders, like making a snow angel with those two signs. And it's like, so they're just like doubling down on this. Right. And uh, so this goes on. It's like during this time, like I'm talking about it in like giving a few interviews, like talking about it there, like on Twitter a little bit, um, like reiterating the verses that contradict them. And then, like, after more than two years, like, I wake up one morning and I check, you know, I'm checking their Twitters. And uh, there was a blog post and they said, uh, about that fags can't repent sign. And I was like, oh, my God. So I, like, opened the blog post and it's, uh, for the first time ever, they had publicly disavowed a sign. And using the same Bible verses that I had been. And I know that's, like, a a very small point in the grand scheme of things, right? But That's that's reason. That's critical reasoning. mm -hmm. But, but like, so this is, this wow. is the goal, right? So like to knowing this is like, what Who, I, do you, do you yeah. know the story behind it? I don't, I don't. It was after my, my brother left. So I don't really know, you know, nobody, the, nobody who's left since then. I also have, I have two, two actually of my cousins have left since then also. Um, but none of them have any understanding of like, of, of what happened. So I don't know. I, and I'm not, I, I'm not trying to take credit. I should also say like. Well, it doesn't matter. It yeah. doesn't matter. Like it what's just matters is that it's, it, this idea change gets is possible. Their, yeah, this yeah. idea gets into their head that what they're doing, it's 
this is not in any way the teachings of Christ. Right. I mean, like the thing is, like some some of it is. <laughs> some of it. Some of it is, yeah. But like, there's like huge. But not the things. God hates fag stuff. Well, like, so it's so crazy because like this is something that I didn't realize until after we left. Also, but like, uh, um, we thought. Remember, I told you about love thy neighbor. Like, they have a sign: love thy neighbor equals rebuke. Right? Because that's in Leviticus 19. That's how it describes you know love: so warning your neighbor when you see them sinning, so they don't go to you know they have an opportunity right. to repent. Um, but the one time, like, so in the New Testament, uh, Jesus is, is talking with this guy, and the guy says, like, how do I inherit eternal life? And he says, well, Jesus says, what, is, what does the scripture say? And he says, to love God and to love your neighbor. And he says, you're right. And he says, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. So it's like this, do you, do you know the story? Um, how does it go? It's, um... So this man, it says this man falls among thieves and they beat him and then leave him, you know, half dead. They beat him until he's half dead or whatever and, you know, steal his clothes and and leave him there. And then it says a, a priest goes and sees the man and he crosses the street and walks by on the other side. And then a Levite, who's also like dealing with the things of God, right? Um, he does the exact same thing, crosses and, and goes on, goes on his way, doesn't help him. And then the Samaritan, uh, stops and binds up his wounds and puts him on his own, says he puts him on his own beast and takes him to an inn and gives the innkeeper money to take care of him and says, anything that you spend more than this, I'm going to, I'll pay you back when I, when I come again. Um, so he's like actually practically taking care of him. So Jesus says, and who do you think, which, which of these was neighbor to the man who fell, fell among thieves? And he said, he who has mercy on him. So in other words, what I'm saying is like we reduced loving our neighbor to preaching, to picketing, to putting words on signs and going out and publishing them. That's what we thought loving our neighbor was. But the one time the example that Jesus gives is not preaching. Like they they didn't go like the, the Samaritan didn't go and say like this happened to you because you're a sinner. Repent. He went and helped him. Right. And so like. Where was that on our picket signs? Where was why that in your practice? Yeah, like why didn't exactly exactly like why why didn't we why didn't we make that an issue for ourselves like a, a primary part of our theology and why didn't we encourage others to do it too? Anyway, so again, this is something that I didn't realize until after, and it was uh, I was talking to a couple of um, Christian friends of mine who who pointed that out, and I was like, I cannot believe I missed that like all those years like and what's crazy is like. The, in in the story, the priest and the Levite are the people who are like dealing with the things of God, right? So they're presumably preaching. It's not enough. Like that's not Action. that's not the fulfillment of that. Yeah. So right. anyway, there's like so many of these things that I just couldn't see when I was at the church because again, you're you're in this. It's it's kind of an echo chamber. Like clearly, we had access to the outside world and we're having these discussions. But the problem with that discussion is that. In a lot of cases, people just didn't understand what our theology actually was, how we actually thought, which is why, you know, David, Abbot Ball making this, you know, Julicious, like the fact that this was an ongoing conversation, that he really got into the nuances of our theology and could really understand where I was coming from to be able to make the point in a way that I could understand. And that's, I mean, I'm kind of in a position to do that with my family now. Anybody, any of us who leaves and who understands you know, can can try to push back in a way that's a lot more effective than people who just don't understand where they're where they're coming from. So you get this job. <laughs> yeah, so I go to Deadwood. My sister and I go to Deadwood, and uh, we were only going to be there for a month. 
and and then we were going to go back and Grace was going to go to school and then I was going to get a job. Um, and then I was in Deadwood for a couple of weeks and I was like, I, I could, I, the idea of going back to Kansas and like being back in the shadow of the church and like seeing our family all the time and like seeing them and not like it's, it's constantly like, being face to face with rejection right. from the people that we love the most. And like the idea of going back to that environment, like I, my cousin was wonderful and I, I love her dearly. Like I just couldn't go back there. So like the day before we're supposed to leave Deadwood, uh, Grace decided to try out for a play there and, uh, and agreed to stay with me. So we changed like all of her classes to be online. And anyway, so we're, and we're staying with Jehovah's witnesses, <clears throat> which we didn't know that when we booked it, it was an Airbnb. My first, our first Airbnb It's a beautiful old house in the black Hills. And, uh, um, so yeah, like we, they, they thought at first when they realized like what was happening, like who we were, we started having these conversations and then we find out they're Jehovah's witnesses. And they, they thought at first that we might be disfellowshipped witnesses before they realized that was, we were at the church. Uh, anyways, it was just like this, these insane conversations about, um, you know, doctrine and theology and interpretation. And, and it was just so mind blowing to see that there were other ways of understanding these texts that are consistent with the text, but totally different than we understood. Right. Anyway, the husband, Dustin, uh, is co-owns a marketing company in Deadwood. So I took a job there part-time. Oh, so what is your process or what's the journey from leaving the church, going to Deadwood, and then becoming sort of a self-proclaimed atheist? Like, how do you, how do you completely remove yourself from the shackles of ideology? Or did you? No, so it's, <clears throat> it's, um, it's definitely a, I didn't want to do, I don't, I don't think it's possible. It's not like a, a switch flips right. and you're just, everything that you knew is gone. But like, you're obviously very rational. Yeah. So it was like each, each time we'd be presented with a situation that, that, uh, so like gay people or Jewish people or these like Jehovah's witnesses, it was obviously I had the instinctive responses to their ideas. Um, and so, but each time I would feel, you know, feel something, it would, the, it would I would just like ask myself these questions, you know, what am I feeling? Why am I feeling it? Is this just instinctive? What is the evidence? Like, does what make sense? Like, it's sort of like having to, 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 to try to reconstruct, like, like actually look at the evidence again, like starting from scratch, basically, uh, in a lot of ways. So, so each time we're I'm presented with these situations, like, you know, it's because obviously, like, there's all these, like, so for instance, gay people, like, that actually didn't take that long to change. Like, because I, I had met a lot of gay people, like while I was at the church and, and they, after we left and, you know, we're talking to them and I'm like, you know, I, I thought I was doing the right thing and, and they, and I'm sorry, like I didn't, I didn't intend to hurt, to hurt you or to, to say hurtful things about you. Like I thought, I thought it was the truth and now I don't know what the truth is. I don't know. I don't know what I believe. I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and like people, I mean, they responded to that. I mean, like they were really understanding um, and, and empathetic in a way that I never imagined people would be like, given how, I don't know if you've seen like, uh, it's, it's really hard for me still to, to go back and watch some of those videos because it's so, it's, I know exactly where I was coming from at the time, but it's so like the arrogance and the condescension and the certainty that we were right. And now of course, knowing like, all the reasons why I don't believe those things. It's a very strange, strange dynamic. But anyway, it's like the fact that people were understanding 
in spite of that long history of all those things that I had said and done at the church, um, was, was, was overwhelming and, and, and wonderful. Um, but anyway, so like being, I was basically, my sister and I were basically putting ourselves over and over. Um, we were, hadn't been in Deadwood for very long when I got a message from David. It was on my, on my birthday. And I, I told him that we had left and, uh, you know, he, he saw, I had stopped tweeting. That's, he knew something was up cause I had stopped tweeting several months earlier. And, uh, so he invited us to come to the Julicious Festival, which was a few weeks later. It's like end of February or something, beginning of March. And uh, I had protested at the Julicious Festival like three years earlier and all these like negative associations and feelings about Jewish people, but realizing I don't know anything about Jewish people. Like hmm. we've been protesting the synagogue in, in Topeka like all my life, but I have I don't really know what like other than you know, just generally Jews kill Jesus and you know, reject him as the savior. So therefore they're like without hope. But I didn't know really much about Jewish theology. I didn't know anything about Jewish people. Like I'd never really spent time with them. So, so I wanted to go to the festival. My sister and I did, um, because we wanted to, um, we wanted to meet Jewish people and like do this whole, it's this examining process. Like what do we believe in and why? And what, and, and we got so much, like light and sort of wisdom from other people, like learning what they believed and why, you know? So, and then David said, yeah, but you have to, you have to speak at the festival. And I was like, no, no, this is not happening. Like I, I can't, I cannot imagine facing these people that I have spent so many years. Like I thought I just, it just seemed impossible and it terrified me right. to be coming face to face with people. And, and I had, hadn't even been out of the church three months yet so it was it was really scary um but my sister was like we're going <laughs> like she she knew that um we needed to have this experience of of like of learning about jewish people and if the cost was we have to talk about it fine and she still also said later she knew i would do most of the talking so it's like okay fine but so we we went and and we we spoke there and then i thought okay that's great now we're gonna like we need to figure out like Grace and I kept saying, we want to do good. Like that, that, that had been the motivating principle of our life was to do good. And now we realize we did so much damage. And, and uh, so anyway, so we were trying to find a way, like we didn't know what to do. Like how, how do you move forward from there? And so we, we just, we didn't know. Um, so we were kind of drifting that whole first year. We, we basically, I think a month was the longest we spent anywhere. We were... Um, you know, we went to visit ex-members of the church, you know, who were across the country. My dad's family, who we never knew growing up because they were never part of the church. So, I mean, like we we had seen them, like they would come visit for a few hours sometimes or maybe a couple. They were of, allowed to visit even though they were For weren't. a while. But then several years before we left, they cut off all contact with his family there also. It had been very limited already. But then So was, you haven't spoken to your dad either. Mm-mm. So you spoke to his family. Yeah, his his parents and his, his brother. Um, and how they feel about all this? My my grandmother, I called her um, about a month, a little over a month after we left, one of my first nights in Deadwood. And I, I told her we had left, and she um, just immediately started crying, and she said, I, I've been waiting for this for 30 years. Like, she had, my older brother had, one of my older brothers had left since since my dad had joined the church, is what she was saying. You know, she, my dad's parents are so there's they're amazing people like his dad is it was career air force he retired from the from the air force um 
and they're they're wonderful people and all we could see of them was well they're divorced and remarried they're they're going mm. to hell they're a bad influence and like it what's it's it's insane to me now to think like my grandmother has been without her son like her son for decades and how painful that that must be like i've only been it's been four and a half years since i left and what am I going to be doing in in thirty years? Like, how am I? What, what is what is the? And I don't know. It's a crazy journey that you've been on for just four and a half years. It's really That's insane. Really, like, when did it solidify in your head that you were going to like identify or like speak out as a non-believer? This morning. <laughs> I really? don't. I, I mean, like, so I was. I was actually talking to, to Sam about this a few months ago, like, because like, there's, there's, there's part of me that, like, I mean, like, when I said, when a lot of a lot of people hear jerk when they hear atheist, right? And uh, I don't use that word for myself. Atheist? I don't either. No. And 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 it's because like it it entails like it seems to bring in like this idea that you're so certain you're certain there's no God. You mock people who are religious. You don't like them and all this. And I I I don't feel that. Like and I also feel like I am I'm open to evidence. Yes. You know, like I haven't like decided there is no God. It's like I just I just don't see the evidence, and so I I don't believe and. If there is evidence, like, I want to know. Like, I, and again, I talk to religious people all the time and I think about theology a lot. I just, I can't not. Like, it also becomes, there's a, there's a group mentality involved in atheism. And there's, uh, I, one of the reasons why I was reluctant to identify as an atheist is that so many people were asking me to identify as an atheist. I'm like, what do you give a shit? Mm-hmm. Why do you want me to come out? I told you I'm not religious. Right. Like, but especially, uh, especially the idea that there cannot be a God like, right. or there cannot be any sort of a higher power and that after you die, it just ends. Yeah. Like, how do you know? Right. Exactly. And that's exactly where I am. It's not a knowing for certain that right. there is no God. It's a, I just don't believe. There's so little we know about human life. Yeah. Forget about the idea of possibility of afterlife or the possibility of what consciousness is there, possibility of what this concept that we call a soul is. What is, what is that? Mm. Or forget about psychedelic experiences and what do they represent? And what, what, what do they represent when they're coming from what essentially is human neurochemistry? There's the most potent ones are chemicals that exist in the brain. They're endogenous to the human body. And what, what are those experiences and how, why are they so akin to religious experiences? And why, why do people even believe now, especially these scholars in Jerusalem have connected the burning bush of Moses with the acacia bush, which is a bush that's rich in psychedelic chemicals. And they think that it's entirely possible that Moses had a psychedelic experience in which he came back with all the laws that human beings are supposed to be living by as proclaimed by the great spirit of the universe or whatever the hell he encountered. Like who, who knows? Who knows? But this idea that people love to say, you know, God is dead. There is no God. Like Mm -hmm. that's just as silly as saying there is one. Right. And and this is why like the, like the whole process since we left, like it it wasn't a, like, I mean, first of all, like the idea of choosing another belief system, like I I would like learn all this stuff about Jehovah's Witnesses and I'm like, like, okay, yeah, that's mostly internally consistent. Like, I think there's a lot of, I I, I never was like tempted to join them or whatever. And I should say they're actually, they're not, they're not Witnesses anymore. Like they're not, they've since, yeah, they left a a little over a couple of years ago. Oh, they left too, huh? Yeah. Wow. Do you think that you guys leaving and. 
having these intimate conversations with them in their home might have had something to do with that? I I'm still really good friends with them. Like they're some of my best friends. Um, I don't I don't think that it was that direct of a thing. But it was a part of the whole journey. Yeah, I mean, I think something. so. Like we we would have these long conversations, and actually, I was the craziest thing when I found out like that that they had left. Like it was it was. Dustin and Laura, other names. Laura, it was her birthday, and uh, they don't. Jehovah's Witnesses don't celebrate birthdays. So like, <laughs> I was I was talking on the phone, and I didn't even know it was her birthday. It's like I was. We were talking on the phone for like over an hour, and I was like telling her about all this, all these things that I'd been thinking about, and like, and then at the end of the conversation, she's like, she's like, well, it's my birthday today, and uh, I'm celebrating it, and I just like was shocked. I, I didn't say anything for a couple of seconds. Like I. Because I, I obviously like knowing what that, and it was different. It wasn't as like as much for them, you know. Like it wasn't the same right. level of, but like I know the disorientation and the loss and the like all that. And it's complicated. It's like you don't want to just be like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you're out of this because I think they believe some things that are really kind of nuts. Right. But but so I was just like very cautiously like like I don't know what happened, but just know that I I mean I I'd always like loved and cared about them and and you know like. But I was so eager to have these conversations, like to, to understand what had happened with them. And it's kind of just just following the like how much internal inconsistency, like when you were saying earlier about the, the whole idea about the Bible being the infallible word of God. And like, oh, that's a neat trick. There's no way you can argue around that. This right. is why, like, it's I think internal inconsistency, like in the doctrines themselves, like that's seems to be a really important way to get to to get in, to get through right. that, like. Like to argue Plant the seed of doubt. Yeah, because that's it's you have to, it's finding the inconsistency in these two beliefs that allows you to maybe question the bigger things, the bigger principles. And anyway, just I think it's it's important to ask the questions no matter what you believe. It's important to question and to always be looking and examining for new evidence because like, you know, you talk about this a lot, but like confirmation bias and and cognitive dissonance like these these things that um keep us locked into these belief systems and and impervious to change or not even impervious but like like resistant to it yeah we want to be like open and and so this is i I mean i still try to do this and this is why like but do you do you ever want to like grab your mom and go you got to listen to me for an hour just let's talk i I would if she i would love to talk to her if she would listen to me but she she just won't even look at you no like if you knocked on the door rang your doorbell uh, that that's happened a couple times. Not me, my sister, and, and like they close the curtain, the window, and turn off the lights inside. That happened. That happened once. Wow. But um, yeah, they 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 won't. And this is why. Do you think it's possible she might hear this? Yeah. She would listen to this. I think it's I think it's possible. I mean, I think I think somebody at the church will listen to it for sure. I mean, so this is the thing. Like when people leave, like everything that we say, any of us who leave, that we say and do publicly, the church pays very close attention to it. Like when I was at the church, I did the same thing. And partly it's a like needing to know like what they're saying so that you can have a good explanation, like so you can counter it effectively. It's a game. Yeah. You're scoring points. mm -hmm. And, uh, but, so this is why, another reason why it became evident that I couldn't hide forever. Like if I, hiding following the rules you know pretending like none of this happened and like not causing any waves for the church like that doesn't change anything like the only thing that helps is is talking about it like and and in because here's the other thing like even if i like privately in in letters like there's things that i sent to my parents or other church members like they're not gonna 
I mean, they're probably not going to share those with my siblings. And if they do, it's going to be with a whole bunch of, you know, words against me at the same time. So like it's, it's only by talking publicly can you, you know, that's how they can actually see who you really are and what you really think and what you've really gone through without the filter of look at what these whores are doing, right. you know, things like that. Like it's, it's, uh, do you think your kids or your, your brothers and sisters are going to hear this? I think some of them definitely might. Definitely might. Do you, do you have hope that they'll eventually bolt? I, I do. I hope that they, not not because of any, I hope they can hear the reasoning and see see the consequences of what they're doing for other people. And that a lot of it, I mean, is unscriptural. And so even even by their own understanding, like they they're there are things that contradict them. I, I hope that they change their minds. And at the very least, I hope that the church continues to, to moderate, to not be so... I, a lot of their new signs are things like... Uh, another one of the big things for me was imprecatory prayer, right? Which is this idea of... What's uh, the word? Im- Im- imprecatory. So imprecatory? Like, mm-hmm. So I've never like heard of that word. Praying for curses for your enemies, right? Oh, God. Right. So we did you this... pray to curse against your enemies? Oh, um, Often. Yeah. Wow, that seems incredibly non-Christian. Right, but there's a like David, King David. Oh it, yeah. So you, it's Old Testament though, right? It is. That's true. Well, see, this is the thing. So, like, you know, we we took that as an example for us. So he prayed for his enemies, for their children to be fatherless, and for their wives to be widows. And so he's, right. you know, praying for God to do all these, you know, bad things to. Is that the Romans? To, he was praying against the Romans. No, it was it, David, uh, Philistines. Okay. Um, and Saul, I guess, but, um, but so, so we took that as an example, example right? Praying against uh, his mm-hmm. enemies. So after we left, I sent, uh, is I you know, contacted my, this is my dad and, uh, talked about this problem. So like David also had a lot of wives, but we don't take his example <laughs> as that men should have many wives. Yeah, and what about that? And why? Well, it's because it contradicts what Jesus and the apostle Paul said about marriage right. being one man, one woman for life. Right. So That's Jesus, the new way. Right. So, and Jesus and Paul both also said, they talked about loving your enemies, bless them that curse you and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. So you're supposed to be praying for the good of your enemies. Right. right. And so it's, it's, it's a contradiction. Right. And so if, anyway, it's another like a long time. Like there's been like a bunch of sermons. Like, so now my grandfather passed away uh, three years ago. And so now there's eight elders and there are the eight pastors and my, my dad is one of them. So there's been a series of sermons on imprecatory prayer since then. And they're like, it seems like I, it seems so confused because like on the one hand, they're still kind of justifying it, but also it just seems like you're trying to reconcile things that aren't reconcilable. Right. So, so, but a lot of the, the, so they stopped, I should say, there used to be a flyer that went out every like Friday and it used to say like, thank God for 15 dead soldiers. We pray for 15,000 more. And so it would list all the soldiers who had died that, that week. And, uh, within a, like after like eight months, you know, my dad gave a sermon about imprecatory prayer. Like at the time when I first, you know, said that, you know, there was, uh, he put out a video news, uh, explaining like why imprecatory prayer is the thing. And, and it's supported by the Bible. Eight months pass. He gives a sermon about loving your enemies 
within a couple of weeks, that flyer was changed, and now it doesn't say that we pray for 15,000 more. Um, I haven't seen the... What's you, the first part? Is the first part still... Thank God. So they, they say, because God is sovereign, you have to thank him for everything. So oh, the fact God. that these... So it's still thank God for 15 dead soldiers? Yeah. So the second part. What I'm just trying to say is, like, there there has been some moderation. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the new signs are things like, be reconciled to God and Christ our hope. Things like that, like th- that are not God hates facts. Like those are, I think that's I think that's improvement at the very least. Even though there are still obviously these these harsh things as well. Yeah. So there's some adjustment and some consideration. Mm-hmm. Um. So you don't talk to your dad anymore either, right? Mm-mm. No one. No. Um. Is the, wow. Is there? Anything that you think that you can do other than continuing to speak and continuing to to do what you're doing that's going to reach them? So, I mean, I, I'm almost finished writing a book. I'm nearing the... Is it a book to them? It, it, it's, it is both for them and also for, for other people. There's part of the... So that's kind of what I was getting at. Like, yeah. Almost like you writing a book, like yeah. letters to my mom and dad. So it's not... It's not it's not written quite that way. Uh, not as a, I actually did consider doing it that way, but uh, eventually ended up like right now it's based on um, each chapter is based on a relationship that sort of brings us like the starts with my mother and then my grandfather and sort of like coming into this ideology and then the process of all the, like the mental machinations of, of leaving and like how my mind changed over time. And then what's happened since we left, like and I hope that by, you know, for my family, I hope that by articulating these things in, in a way, it's like, obviously we're, we're sitting here and even if we talk for like however many hours, like there's only so much that it's not the same as having it written in a way that's hopefully very clear and, 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 and just honest to the experience, like in, in as much detail and, and clarity with as much detail and clarity as possible. Like, I think that that's... I hope that that will will be effective in at least showing them a, that there's a different way. That there are other ways of of understanding these things, and so I do hope that. Um, I guess I also hope, like in my TED talk, I I, I have I have I feel really <laughs> um, like hesitant about like trying to teach anybody anything at this point. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. because. I spent my whole life telling other people how to live and now to be like, well, you guys know I got this. Like now I got this, <laughs> like, you know, like right. it, it just, the idea of like, of insinuating even in any way that I have something to tell people about anything. Like I, I'm, I, I really don't like that idea at all. And the only reason I did the t- John Ronson actually is the one who reached out to me about, about doing it. Cause he, it was a thing that he was curating an event that he was curating, curating. And, uh, and so I wrote the first draft of the talk and, and the curators, you know, came back afterwards and was like, well, it's like, this is, uh, how can we avoid the mistakes that you made? And so like, and I went back and like took examples from David and my husband and the way that people on Twitter engaged me that actually helped, helped change things. But so, so it's not explicit in that way in the book, but I hope that just by talking about this and telling the stories, like I when I read accounts uh, of people who have gone through similar situations, it, it's so helpful to me, like to realize like my family, like 
yes, they man their their activities are are kind of they're extreme and like they manifest themselves in very strange ways to most people, but they're very common, very human flaws. And if if anything that if I talk about this in a way that helps other people see it in their own lives or that you know will resonate with people who have gone through similar things, like that's I think I mean I that's I want to do that. I want to do as much good with these experiences as I can because just because I, that's how my parents raised me, honestly. Right. But their argument, of course, would be, you know, you were so right and so uh, convinced when you were with the church. Now you're so right and so convinced now that you're outside the church. How do you know you're right now? So th- the latter, it's not the same. It's not the same at all. Like I'm not, I do not walk through the world with the sense of, <clears throat> with that sense of certainty and, and in, in my position and righteousness of my position. Mm. I, I'm asking questions and I'm I'm trying to explain what why I believe differently now than I did. I'm still asking the questions though. Like I never stop like you know what I mean? It's 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 such a fundamentally different way of of engaging the world. I do know what you mean. But if yeah. I was on their side and I was trying to pick holes in your statement, which is what they seem to do, mm-hmm. right? If they're yeah. listening to the things you say, they're listening to the things you say so they can counter them with some sort of a Bible quote or right. some sort of a, mo- a more articulate opinion. Right. If I was listening, right. I would say you were so convinced when you were with us. Now you're so convinced, but now you don't even have God. Yeah, so, so how could you be right? So the thing is. You're deluded. The Satan's <laughs> serpent scales are covering your eyes. So this, they say shit like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is another. Um, another one of the paradoxes that I realized before I left. So there's this verse, and again, this is one that my mom like, was, would quote all the time growing up and with such urgency, like she needed us to understand this. And and the verse is, uh, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and who can know Ooh. it, right? So, Ooh. so... I thought the heart was good. Home is what the heart is? No. <laughs> I thought I thought yeah. heart is like people being sweet. And so no? the human heart is inherently, and according to the church, is inherently deceitful, right? Wow. Okay. But the problem is they also talk about uh, the heart as being like, that's how we know that the Bible is true. It's because God, God puts an unction on our hearts. Your deceitful little heart. Yes, exactly. So you're at the end of the day. It's always our own hearts. Like it's our hearts that say, "Okay, well, I'm going to follow the Bible, no matter no matter what." Or, in other words, at the end of the day, each one of us is always making a decision. It's just that for them, they they think that outsourcing it and saying that, "Oh no, it's the Bible." It's like, well, you're the. It's your. I tried to articulate this on on, on when I did Sam's Sam Harris's show a couple of years ago. Like, but it's that. I read it actually in his book. Like that's what helps me. Like it's it's your own moral impulses that are authenticating the truth of the Bible, right? right. So at the end of the day, it's still you. It's still your judgment. Your the, the judgment of your own deceitful heart. So again, from their perspective. So I guess what I'm saying now is like I'm not when I when I talk to my family when I'm addressing them. Like it's it's with these questions. Like. I know how you understand these verses, but what about these things that contradict them? Right. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying I can't see how you're right because of these verses. Like, how do you do this? How right. do you understand this? And what about verses that contradict other verses in the Bible? That's, they, the church doesn't believe in that, that, that those contradictions exist. The, so when you talk about those contradictions, which are pretty clear, mm. what, what do they say? 
Well, so the Lord works in mysterious ways. <laughs> Good night, kids. Right. <laughs> right. There's there's always that like if if you think there's like for instance like back to the like free will. You know, the, or sorry, the predestination thing that God designing people to go to hell and then holding them responsible. Yeah, right. So there's this. This is a contradiction, right? This the idea that you are responsible, right? You're right. man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. They don't go together, right? Such an awesome quote. Can you say that quote again? <laughs> man's uh sorry the man's responsibility and god's sovereignty they do not go together right but the quote in the bible oh i'm what sorry is the, the way it's phrased um oh which uh, the nabido man who art thou that repliest against god yeah okay yeah <laughs> uh shall the thing form say to him that formed it why hast thou made me thus yeah so yeah so it's that those ideas are inherently they're inconsistent right, right. They're, they're contradictions and so gramps I remember one day in, in church, he That's was... That's you call him? Gramps? Gramps, Gramps yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like such a cute name. He's great. Such an evil old dude. <laughs> <laughs> no, like well, he, I'm sure he's not evil. He could be so... He is your grandpa. Funny and... and like, it's so funny because, like, again... He could be funny? Oh, hilarious. Really? Yeah. Was like, he a sweet guy? Does, he, like, very his sweet. He would sing the song from the 40s and call us My Great Big Beautiful Doll. Like, that's what he would he'd call Aww. us. And Love Bug. And, so and, you miss him. Yeah. We well, sat, you, you didn't get to see him before he died. Because you left. I, I can't talk about that. You can't? No, no. I can't. Not oh. unless you want me to start crying. I won't do oh. it. Sorry. That's okay. Um, uh, but, but yeah, he's... I thought he, there was like a legal reason. He was, no, no, no. He was... Uh, that's just that deep for all the stuff you talked about yeah like you can't talk to your dad you can't talk to your mom but something about your grandpa yeah he's special yeah i'll tell you later okay okay (laughs) but in the eyes of most people he was the booming voice yeah of hate for sure and i i totally understand it it's not so fascinating though that you could see someone in an intimate way you love them, their family. You get to see all the positive aspects of them. Mm-hmm. And yet you get to see this venom that he spews yeah. out to all the world. And that, that also represents you guys and your mm-hmm. family and your ideology. And you're behind this powerful leader. He's the founder of all this, right? Mm-hmm. So essentially he's the man who created the, the very bars that imprison your family right now. I know. And it's it's so – and this is one of the things, you know, after after I left, like thinking about, like, how did we get here? You know, how did we end up in this place? It's an understanding of psychology or a lack of. The problem with any sort of ideology, rigid ideologies that are backed up by a deity, is that there can be no questioning. Mm-hmm. And as soon as there can be no questioning, you're, you're talking about human language. You're mm-hmm. talking about something that came, obviously, from the words of human beings. They, they wrote those words down. They put them somewhere. And now you're reinforcing this ideology. Anyone with even a basic understanding of how easily influenced people are and about our alpha male chimpanzee history or lower primate history, we know that we're incredibly susceptible to influence and incredibly susceptible to the whims of the group mindset and that this is imperative for survival. These tribal instincts that we have, imperative for survival and the reason why we made it to 2017 and that these play against us in, the, in forms of ideology and these very rigidly reinforced behavior patterns. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is what that's what the, and when the problem becomes atheism versus people who are 
deists or people who are Christian or Muslim or whatever the fuck it is. It has nothing to do with that, honestly. It's just about mind and about humans and about our, our, our inherent tendency to give in to these, these predetermined patterns of behavior to give us comfort in these patterns. That, yeah, there is so much comfort in certainty. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it could be really frustrating. All these sometimes all the rules and the like, like you said, very rigid. Mm-hmm. But but after when I left, the uncertainty was just this enormous weight. Like I had no idea. Like what enormous you, weight on you? Yeah, right. Just, like all of a sudden. Yeah, because like again, well, one first of all, like. One of the things that makes doing things like this hard or like speaking publicly at all now that it's not like me, like with God on my side or whatever is the idea like uh, now I'm standing on my own two feet. Like it's it's my own ideas and like who the hell am I? Right. You know, just that the sense of like self-doubt and uncertainty and and like it, it's it's just it's it's it can be crippling sometimes. Um, yeah. But but you just you have to keep going and keep asking the question like this is one of the things like you said uh I mean, the whole, another reason I don't like to call myself an atheist or or to call myself anything, uh, actually, Sam, sorry, I cannot stop talking about Sam Harris, Um, but he had this, uh, this video where he was saying, like, we shouldn't call ourselves atheists or secularists or humanists, we shouldn't call ourselves anything, we should just be good, decent people living in the world and and challenging bad ideas wherever we find them like yeah. that's it's not about the i, I mean we want an identity like sure. people crave identity and and belonging in this like the the in group like when you're talking about gramps like how how much goodness i got to see in him that like people on the outside never saw it's because of that you know the in group out group mentality like the the bond like i said earlier the bonds that are forged there it's so it's so enticing mm-hmm. but but it comes at a at a huge cost and I didn't see that cost for a long time. And so now this is another reason I don't, I just don't like those labels. It's not about the identity. It's just about trying to find the best way we can to live in the world and, and do as much good as we can. I think there are bumps in the road in the evolution of culture. I think that's what they are. I just think we haven't figured out how dangerous they are and that we fall prey to them. But they're also the reason why we got here in the first place, because we did figure out these ways to bond together. We did figure out these ways to identify with each other in this very extreme and very personal way. And if it wasn't for those things, who knows if we would have ever made it this far? Who knows? But they've also also been able to – people have been able to rationalize horrific acts through the use of this us versus them, you know, our group versus the other. Yeah. It's a, a very strange aspect of what I believe is the adolescent nature of human social and cultural evolution, which is where we're at right now. We've come so far, we think, but really we haven't. We haven't really been around that long. I mean, they were talking about this this modern human being they found 300,000 years ago. God, that's a blip. blip. So it's a blink of an eye in terms of the, the history of the world, never mind the history of the universe. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's it's very dangerous when someone tells you they know. It's very dangerous because you don't know. And so you're like, well, if they know, I'll just listen to them. And that's what we've been doing forever. And, it's, and I think people are recognizing more and more now that that is that's not safe. It's dangerous. Mm-hmm. And it, it's an impediment to progress. Personal progress, uh, progress as a community. Mm-hmm. We have just this insane instinct to join teams to the point where people, they identify with certain patches of dirt. I'm a Texan. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you're a Texan. So this is all okay. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, I'm from New York. 
Oh, you're from New York. Well, that, well, I get you now. Right, I right, understand right. you. You're in this nice little category. Mm-hmm. You get to operate on these predetermined patterns now. Mm-hmm. You know, you've you don't even have to have your own beliefs. You just adopt a conglomeration of beliefs that fit whatever category you fall into, whether you're a left-wing progressive or a right-wing conservative. Mm-hmm. It's it's we're it's, we're really weird. We're a really weird monkey. It's yeah. just, we're, we're so strange. And we're also aware how weird we are. That's what I was going to say. Like, that is the, that's where I feel so much and why I feel so much hope, right? Because, like, the more awareness we have, like, the, the better we can go about trying to sort of shore those things up. Yeah. Like, see the pitfalls and then try to find ways around them. But it takes people like you that are incredibly courageous that break out of the pattern and 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 just paddle out into the wa- the waters of discomfort because that's what people have a really hard time doing people have a really hard time changing yeah. they have a really hard time taking chances they have a really hard time doing new things and you did all of it at once in one big burst and you separated from your tribe it was like so important to you that you separated from your tribe that's so hard yeah yeah for sure but it it's this is one of those things where like, I mean, I was talking to David after I left before the Delicious Festival. We were sitting uh, in the home of uh, this rabbi that I had protested earlier. And, and uh, your rabbi is a whore was the sign my sister held. And like, oh, nice. now like living with this rabbi, right? <laughs> like, actually, that's who I'm staying with here while I'm here. <laughs> You're staying with a rabbi? That's yeah, a rabbi there. and his wife and their, their four kids. How, how is a rabbi a whore? <laughs> that you, they, you pay them and they make you feel good. Like they tell you what you want to hear oh, because you God. pay them. That makes him a whore. Yeah. In that case, is a comedian a whore too? I must be a whore. Yeah, probably. Right? Probably, yeah. They're For totally sure. going to be, you know. It's, t- it's whoredom. <laughs> it's prostitution. <laughs> but uh, David said. What about said, people give massages? Whores? I wouldn't go there. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're making you feel good and you, you pay them. Isn't well, it's lying to you. It's lying to oh, you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So chiropractors would be whores. <laughs> Is that how it would work? I guess. <laughs> um, but uh, David was like, um, it's like, you are your parents' children. Like, I'm just like sitting there bawling and because and, I, I felt like such a betrayer. This is like, again, right after we left. And, uh, and he said, and I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, they're the ones who taught you to stand up for what you believe in, no matter what it costs you. And so I, I, wow. I love that idea, like that there, there's still so much from home that I have held on to and that, that still guides me. Uh, it's just that I obviously had to, it's just the, the things that I now think are destructive and, and hurtful and just not true, not, not consistent with reality. Um, but that, that gave me a lot of like, a lot of hope. Right. Well, you, you definitely seek comfort in ancient wisdom and quotes. Who, me? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's hard. Like, here's the thing. Like, it's so, I remember I was, uh, there's a New Yorker article that came out at the end of 2015. And so I, I was doing interviews with the writer, Adrian Chen, who's amazing. And he's an amazing writer, just, just generally, not that just that article, but like, and so we're having these conversations, like, like we, I think we spent three days together in Kansas talking about like maybe six hours at a time. And then on, on the phone, like three and four hour conversations regularly. Like it was so much like trying to really get across all of these, all of this for him to really understand exactly how my mind changed and all the details and the right. church, whatever. Like, and at one point, like, you know, we're talking and 
and he asked me a question. It was about the soldier's funeral, I think. And then I just immediately started like quoting all these verses and like, and just right, like, right. whoa, you just went into this mode. Like I yeah. could tell this is just like this, like switching into this, like, like, like it had been at the church. Like, it's just not possible. Like, even though I think that I don't believe the Bible is the infallible word of God, but like, I spent so much time like reading it and learning it and, and memorizing, you know, chapters at a time with my family and all this stuff. So it's like, it's right there. It's always like, and there, like I said, there's so much good in it. So it's like, I, I don't know. It's just, I know what you're saying. Things that that are, it's, it's comforting when you said it's, uh, it sounds so foreign to hear the King James, but like to me, it was just, sorry. (laughs) It's comforting. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's familiar and it's, and it's, it's a part, it's a part of my, my home and my upbringing that I, that I can keep as a person outside of it, looking at it, when someone starts spouting out biblical phrases and terms and, and using these parables and using these stories and passages in the Bible to justify things and then uh, equating like certain aspects of modern thinking and behavior to those things. To me, it's almost like I'm looking at mathematics that I don't totally understand. It's like, I see what you're doing. You're, pu- you're plugging this equation in to achieve a desired result. And this result is um, uh, a peace of mind. Peace of mind is what you're looking to attain. And you're looking to attain justification for your lifestyle and actions. And you can do so with this quote, which is essentially like you're, you're, you're plugging in some sort of theoretical physics. I mean, it's a weird stretch of what I'm saying. Mm. But what I'm saying is just like the feeling of it. The feeling of it is like, oh, I don't like this. Well, then you use this. Oh, and then there's that. Okay, mm-hmm. it makes this. So it's right. all these little tools in order to operate the mind on a more harmonious frequency for your own personal satisfaction and yeah. your, your feeling of happiness and peace. Mm-hmm. Like you can feel comfort. In the fact that you have quoted the Bible verses that explain your behavior correctly. You've made the noises the in the right order. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And whether or not those noises make sense at all. And then when in doubt, you throw in like some w- weird principle like that God has a plan for everything. So uh, fuck your doubts. Like right. we just stick that right in there. And like, okay, right. good. Right. So that's like dark matter. You know, right. like, well, where's all the mass? Well, dark matter. There you go. <laughs> oh, okay. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, mm-hmm. it's like it's an odd sort of a thing because the it's, the desire it outsources ju- the the uncertainty yeah. and the and the lack of knowledge. Like you don't understand. Like, it's something I don't understand. It's okay. I don't have to understand it because somebody else understands it. Also, you're using tools. It's also like you're using these these phrases and these tools and these passages to achieve desired results internally. As well as externally, you're, you're, you're using them to comfort yourself, but you're also using them to, to prove your point against these others. Mm-hmm. And that's a big part of what's going on with this whole tribalism, cult-like behavior. It's justifying your own patterns of thinking by demonizing and marginalizing other patterns of thinking. Yes. Okay. So this is something that I, I missed this for a long time too, but like, so my grandfather, like I think I said earlier, maybe that Christians were some of the biggest targets of the church. Yeah. Like we spent so much time, uh, like the minor differences. Yes, exactly. But I mean, even like major differences, like the hatred of God and, you know, like, mm-hmm. and, you know, people going to hell for eternity and, and, and why, and all these things like, like we, we spent so much time Gramps would, instead of saying, we are the only ones who have it right. Westboro Baptist church is the only true church in the entire world. And I'm 100% certain of that. 
it was a different strategy. It was attacking every other version of Christianity, every other understanding of, of the Bible. Uh, and so, and it's like by default, it's like, well, you, you know exactly why all these people are wrong, Methodists and Catholics and whatever, like, and, and you can articulate chapter and verse why they're all wrong. And therefore the end, like it becomes clear, like we are right and we are the only ones who are right and everybody else is. So it's just this, uh, it's, it's so frustrating. Uh, yeah. So frustrating. It's, well, I hate to use the word, but it just, it lacks enlightenment because it's dealing with conflict and it's dealing with finger pointing. <clears throat> it's dealing with insults like just the the term fags god hates fags just using that mm. like that in itself it's just like a giant red flag showing the errors of your thinking in order to even sit down and draw this poster like the, like this is this is not god's approach if there is a god of the bible i mean if there is a god that's in charge of this whole thing and he's filled with love and he has a plan for us all mm-hmm. you get super emotional when you're talking about this stuff don't you i uh, yeah yeah i see you're all worked up sorry <laughs> no no don't apologize it's important mm-hmm. look i mean it's amazing how well you keep it together without contact with your mom and your dad and your brothers and sisters and it's been four years mm-hmm. how long four, four and, and a half? half yeah yeah um Wow, I totally lost my train of thought there. That's okay. You said something. Well, I was talking about just that, the the insults and this attack. Yeah. Yeah. So like the way, like I always, you know, we would say people don't, it's not the method that's the problem. It's the message. It doesn't matter how we say the message. People are still going to hate it. Like if you, if you say, you know, God created most people to go to hell and we're, we're among the only ones going to heaven and sorry suckers, you know, like People hate that message, right? Um, people hate the idea that you have to uh, like follow this set of rules. Like you can't just live the way you want to live. You have to obey these ideas as we understand them. Um, like people don't like that message. They don't want you telling them what to do. So that's we would always make that argument. And then of course, and you know, after when I was thinking about leaving, it was like, of course it matters how you talk to people. Of course it does. And even the Bible talks about it. So like. You know, in the New Testament, uh, Paul talks about, you know, to the Jews, I became as a Jew and to the Greeks as a Greek. And, you know, to the weak, I became as weak. It's like it's, the idea is like you understand your audience and who you're talking to and you're actually trying to reach them. You're not just self-righteously, you know, proclaiming this thing and saying, get on board or you're doomed. Like it's it's there's there was no we had. And we, we sometimes could have those arguments one-on-one, but like, you know, when we go out to these protests, we're saying these things and it's so provocative and inflammatory and we knew it and we just did it anyway because we thought it was justified. As long as it was true, then it didn't matter how we said it or when we said it or to whom we said it, it was a grieving widow or, a, you know, a, a child whose father had just died or parents whose children had just died. It's just, it, it's, it's insane to me now. I, I can't. I have a hard time, like, so, so much of my history, of my past, like, I know why I believed what I believed. But sometimes that when I see these, these contradictions, I think, what was I thinking when we were reading these verses? And I, I don't, and I can't think of what they could be thinking now, except that it's just that cognitive dissonance that yes. just, just, just going past it. And she's like, oh yeah, that sounds good. But like not seeing, you know, there's another verse that talks about a, a deceived heart has turned him aside. So he, he can't even say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Like, that's that's the feeling that I have. Sorry, back to the, you know, quoting ancient no, wisdom. they're great. They're great. Yeah. 
but anyway, it's just this is why I think. But it's, I think you're uniquely qualified to sort of translate those. And I, I, that's and that's the thing. Like I, that's that's why I keep. I mean, I want to keep asking the questions. It's not just about. You know, I think my family feels they feel attacked, I'm sure, when I talk about this and why I don't believe it. And, you know, when I send these messages on Twitter and I I remember what that felt like, you know, hearing people, people that I had loved speak against these doctrines and values that I held so, so dear. Uh, But I it's not because I'm trying to hurt them or or embarrass them or humiliate them. It's because I I want to help them see Right. And if if I'm wrong about something, then like I want to know that, too. So it's just it's always this like openness to to change and to into, I don't know, finding a better way. One of the things you did that's incredibly brave is not just leave, but when you change your thinking and change, you have to admit that you fucked up big time. You have to admit that your entire life has been essentially about propagating a lie. Mm hmm. There was a, I honestly, you know Weird Al? Yankovic? Yeah. <laughs> that is a song that I remember listening to as a kid. <laughs> Which and song? It was a, Everything You Know Is Wrong, Up up Is Down, Black Is White, and Short Is Long. And I remember like in this process of like, you know, before we left, like remembering that and being like, I cannot believe I just thought of a Weird Al song. But yeah, that's totally what it, like, just, just coming to terms with like how, how, how wrong and how how could this have been for my entire life and how can i possibly face this like in my own mind let alone to all of these people like i did it in front of the like in front of the whole world you know anybody who'd seen like all the documentaries all the times that i had so publicly defended all these ideas and now realizing like how can I possibly face that? Right, and if you were ever running for office, that's the first thing they pull out. <laughs> Look at Megan Phelps in 2003 and the horrible things she was saying. <laughs> that's what they do, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think your your ability to say that you you don't agree with what you used to do and you are a different person now is so important for people to hear. It's one of the most important things I think you're saying because people feel so imprisoned by their past it's a huge problem with human beings that you we repeat sort of the same patterns of behavior because even if they're wrong, there's comfort in mm-hmm. there's comfort in going back to those cigarettes. Yeah. There's comfort in, in binge eating again. There's comfort in gambling. Yeah. I know this. I know this crazy rush of trying to find crack. I'm yeah. going for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of weirdness in, in human behavior patterns. And what you've done is n- not just have real intellectual courage to just actually challenge your own personal thought processes and ideas and look deep into these scriptures that you've been following your whole life and find these contradictions explore these contradiction contradictions and try to debate them but also just to just to come out and say like i was making just big mistakes i think it's really hard to say i mean a lot of things but but two things just for people in general like i messed up yeah and I don't know. Yeah. And like, we have yes. to be able to, I mean, yeah. I, I think to be able to, there's so, and honestly, like, this is another thing, like, there's so much freedom in that, in both of those ideas. Like I, I said earlier, like certainty, there's so much comfort and certainty. Like yeah. you don't have to wonder, you don't have to doubt, you don't have to question. You can just go on your way and know that what you're doing is exactly sure. right. And sure. like, there's so much comfort there, but, but 
in my experience, it, it's a false certainty. It's a false comfort because you're 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 going along if you're not if you're not examining if you're not like taking in new evidence if you're not like saying I don't know. It's like I don't have to have all the answers. Right. Like I can just say like I'm doing my best. This is where I'm at now. Like I'm I'm sure I'm gonna like find something. I'm fi- I'm gonna find something else that I'm that I've got wrong now, and I'm just gonna keep trying to get. I'm gonna keep trying to get better. Like you don't want to become this static. You know, you want to be able to to grow and learn and understand and, and do better in as many ways as you can. And but you're wrestling constantly with a dangerous and volatile factor, and that's uncertainty. Yeah. And that that is people try to avoid that sucker as mm-hmm. much as they can. Like, I don't want that. Right. Just like learning to be comfortable there. Like yeah. I exist here and I exist in this uncertain space because it's honest. Yes. I don't know. I don't have to know. Right. I can keep trying to understand and, and you know, so it's That's why one of the most the weakest things you can ever see in a person is a person talking about something in a way where like like you ask them a question about something and they don't really know and they try to pretend they do start to pontificate yeah well yeah. you see it instead of saying god i don't know mm-hmm. is that true instead or instead of being like open to the possibility of anything being outside of the realm of their understanding mm-hmm. they double down they double down on their ignorance right. or they avoid it at, at all costs and you see literally see like the little the man in the machinery the ego just b- b- yanking on the gears right. frantically you yeah, can see yeah. it we all recognize it mm-hmm. it's one of the more fascinating things to me about religion in general is that there we have this incredible desire to become a part of a group i mean we, everybody does we we find comfort in these groups but we also can see the the gears spinning when someone does agree with something or someone does say something that resonates or or so when someone says something that's contradictory we see the gears spinning we recognize that this is all some sort of a weird cognitive dance that we're doing to try to make make sense out of this temporary existence on a planet Hurling through infinity. Mm-hmm. It's insane. Yeah, it's be, but it's human. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the human of today. Yep. You know, it's the human where we find ourselves existing and communicating that clearly is on some sort of path, some sort of uh, weird p- path of progress and of innovation and of, of understanding that we're in the middle of. We're in the middle of this storm of understanding. And it's happening like clearly in your own life, and you're living it out in front of the whole world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, yeah, maybe it's a good way to wrap it up. We did already two hours and forty-five minutes. Oh, believe snap. it or not, yeah, just nice. flew by. Yeah. Um, you're a brave person, and I think you re- it's really important what you're doing. It's massive. It really is. It's super hard to do, I'm sure. Thank you. And uh, the fact that Twitter is what started all I off. I love even- Twitter so much. I just, I cannot. Like, even what you were saying earlier about, like, oh, there's only 140 uh, characters. Like, like don't diss Twitter. But here's the thing. Like, it's so crazy. Like, it's like good. Twitter, like, the fact that it's only 140 characters, like, nothing taught me how to be more. Like, I, I'm very, I'm verbose. I talk a lot. But, like, in writing, and I do the same thing in writing, but, like, on Twitter, like, it taught me to, like, distill my ideas and become concise. And, like, oh, yeah. and it, it stopped me from using, that was one of the things, one of the ways that I stopped, like, insulting people instinctively. Because, like, we, we did it so much. Like, we would write these elaborate insults, like, responding to emails and stuff. Because, like, right. obviously on email you can write as much as you want. But, like, on Twitter, like, so it's two things. Like, one, only 140 characters. If I, like, throw in a, you idiot, like, there's... 
it just there's no space for it <laughs> but also like when i did do that like there's this immediate feedback loop that you get so like you can watch the conversation derail in real time yeah and then you realize like okay no i just need to not like because instead of like addressing the arguments like then you're saying like you know you like you don't know me they were you know they'll answer and like it just it it stops anyway it stops the conversation like you want it to be about the the points or whatever it's like i learned so much about communication from twitter and I just love it so much. Like, it's just a tool. Like, it depends on how we use it. I use it a lot, and I, I learn a lot of things on it. I mean, I'm constantly being sent articles, and that's where I found out about the 300,000-year-old human. And, I mean, every day someone sends me something, and I retweet it. Mm-hmm. Just, it's a, And that's how we got connected. Yeah, there you go. So, so there you go. Mm-hmm. More Twitter. Yes. Um, <laughs> your book is coming out when? I don't know yet. I'm finishing yet. the last draft. Uh, yeah. And I, I'm not even going to tell you the name right now because I really want a different name. Okay. Uh, Don't tell me. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you. Sorry. <laughs> what did you say, Jamie? I was laughing. Oh. <laughs> okay. Um, if people want to see more of your stuff, I know you have a TED Talk that's out there. Right. Uh, my Twitter account is just Megan Phelps. Um, yeah. That's it. Well, yeah, there's going to be the book, but... uh, Well, when the book comes out, mm. come back on again. We'll do it again. All right. And we'll tweet out your book and let everybody know. Amazing. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you for being so brave, too. Thank you. Huge. What you've done is huge. Thank you. For a lot of people listening, too. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you tomorrow. Bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning into the podcast, and thank you to our sponsors. Thanks to Caveman Coffee. Go to cavemancoffeeco.com. Use the code word ROGAN and save 10%. Thank you to ZipRecruiter. Go to ZipRecruiter.com forward slash ROGAN and you can post jobs for free. Thank you also to NatureBox. Is that right? Yes. Sorry. Almost spaced out there. Thanks to NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com forward slash Rogan for 50% off your first order. That's naturebox.com forward slash Rogan. Okay, friends. All right. Um, That's it for today, but we have one more because uh, Sebastian Younger, uh, famous war journalist, famous journalist, period, is uh, in town and he wanted to do the podcast. So he'll be on tomorrow. So that's it. That's it for today, and that'll be the last one of the week tomorrow. And uh, all right. All right. Hope you guys enjoyed the shit out of this podcast like I did. Isn't she brilliant? She's brilliant, right? I wasn't wrong. Um, Megan Phelps. And uh, thanks also again to Wheeler Walker Jr., who was earlier today. And thanks to everybody that was on this week. I've been having a great old time. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. See you soon. Much love. Bye. (laughs) 